Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal. This is Ray Burton, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast. Bass soul, take one. Welcome to Men Up Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. This is episode 138, and this is our exclusive interview with old Scott Pingle, the double bass player from the SM2 concert that has recently happened, who did a stunning and I think now unforgettable performance of Anesthesia. No, it's definitely made its way into sort of one of the coolest performances in the entire Metallica story. Right. And I want to note here that we've signed. <laughs> We signed a proximity clause with Scott. He is no longer able to give any other interviews, not only to any other podcasts, but any other human being or news yeah, outlet. this is it. So. Literally for the rest of his life. Sorry, Regis. I was so surprised that he was so willing to sign that. that document. Yeah, that is crazy. Yeah. I mean, unless we're the last one to do an interview. <laughs> Everyone's gotten <laughs> yeah, to right. it before us. Everyone already did it. Yeah. <laughs> I've been avoiding SNM2 videos because, and this is no knock on anyone who's been watching them, but those videos never look or sound great. And I want to wait another month. Right. We're going to see it in the theater, fully produced by Greg Fiddleman. Yeah. However, the one the I've treated myself to a few small things. One was the Unforgiven performance with James I just did singing. Too. I did do that. But the other one is Scott's performance, and yeah. it is an emotional performance. It'll bring a tear to your eye. Mm-hmm. It's pretty unanimous in the Metallica community that it was a it's, it's a beloved performance already. Right, it just yeah. happened a couple weekends ago. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I've seen a lot of feedback from a lot of our listeners who were at one or both shows who said i shed i shed tears during that moment like i, got, I shit tears i, got, I, got, that I, got, I shit tears during right. that moment and then i had to go to a doctor immediately yeah it's crazy i couldn't even stay for the part where he kicked on the distortion pedal well <laughs> scott's in a <laughs> uh you know an accomplished musician i'm sure it's not an uh I'm, it's a very coveted position probably to be in the san francisco symphony uh prestigious symphony and and uh He's a world-class musician. We're yeah. really lucky to they, he was able to make time for us. I do believe that he was uh, flexible with our schedule. His wife is helping with their kids, I believe. Oh, man. So we need to thank his wife first and foremost, and then, of course, Scott for his time. And uh, like we do whenever we have guests, we have the patrons ask Scott a bunch of questions. How many questions did we get from the patrons? Like 15 or so? Mm, we got about 10, I think. 10 to 15? There was a few submissions with multiple questions in there, and I kind of... I Cherry picked the best one. Yeah, we kind of have to just whittle some yeah. of those down for time and yeah. stuff. So we're going to be talking to Scott here soon, shortly. We're going to ask him all the things that you're curious about. Yes. Uh, you know, what was the preparation like? What was the rehearsal like? How did it come to be that he played this homage to Cliff? Right, yeah. Was he a Metallica fan? What's his favorite Metallica record? 
What have you heard of Metallica? <laughs> <laughs> how do you spell Metallica? Do you really know how to play? You bass? know, it's been make it's been going viral this week. This chick that was wearing the I believe it's an Injustice for All shirt. Oh yeah, she didn't know how, any and she was Metallica asked to songs? name. She was asked to name one. Yeah, well, I think the first guy said, "Can you name th- uh, like three three Metallica songs?" And she's like, "No, I can't." Name. And then the host, I think it was, he's like, "Can you name one?" I could if he, if I heard it. If he sings it or something. He tried to, and he j- jokingly just kind of stopped, as if like he probably doesn't know any either. Now, you and I have talked about this. My yeah. official stance is anyone can wear whatever they want, and yeah. it's cool with me. Totally. I, the life's too short and crazy and filled with sadness and pain for me to be an asshole about that. Will I wear a shirt of something I don't know anything about? Probably not. Probably not, It's yeah. not really for me. I'm not going to wear a band shirt that I don't know about. Yeah, because, I mean, oftentimes when you do wear a band shirt, you might see someone else, you know, at the coffee shop, at the mall, if you're shopping or something. And, you know, it's kind of like driving the same car. Somebody kind of, you know, a little nod. But sometimes it strikes conversation. It's like, oh, dude, that's a kick-ass shirt. Like, what's your favorite song on that record right. or whatever? I wouldn't walk out in public with a shirt of an artist I didn't know anything about. And this, unless it was a clear joke. And, and, it, and it is a cringy moment. I mean, it, you know, we retweeted it with the face palm emoji. Yeah. But I don't, we're not the type of dudes that are very begrudging about that. I just kind of... I don't of, think you and I are very snobby about I, it. I mildly roll my eyes. Or oftentimes if my wife and I are running errands and I see somebody in like like some like cool Instagrammy girl or something. like yeah. you An know, influencer, like, if an you will. An influencer in like yeah. a misfit shirt. I, I look at Cal and I go, name me three songs. Right. That's just kind of an ongoing joke. Right. But I wouldn't actually walk up to that person and be like, hey, listen here. Let's talk about their discography. I don't think I would ever, yeah, ask them to actually name the songs. Because yeah. what does that leave you with when they can't? Ha ha, see? Yeah, gotcha. And then we're then yeah. you're the asshole that does that? Yep, absolutely. <laughs> the, the closest thing that ever happened in, in regards to that subject is at my local coffee shop I go to, which is amazing, called The Post. Go check it out, everybody. Uh, I had one of my Metallica shirts on. and just walked in there, normal morning, grabbed my iced coffee, was headed home. And it was a new person working, and uh, they're like, whoa, that shirt. I go, yeah? They go, that's hilarious. Hilarious. And I, and I kind of chuckled a little. I, I, go, I go, what's hilarious about it? Like, oh, it's just kind of like ironic. And I go, I go. Uh, I don't know if he knows what the words hilarious or ironic mean. I think you're right. I just, I told him, I was like, um, I don't know. I, I, I'm a big fan. That shirt's perpendicular, bro. Whoa, that thing is very <laughs> vertical. <laughs> It was just weird. I just kind of, that's all I could think of fire back with was like, I don't, what's so funny about it? Yeah, I don't understand. I love comedy and humor. Yeah. I would love to be in this situation, though, on the receiving end. If I was walking down the street, someone's like, him, if I had my damaging shirt on, like, hey, man, like, are you really a fan? Like, yeah, yeah, I am. Like, name me three songs. Like, I think my response would be, name the name of my podcast about Metallica. Here would be my response I'm not going to name three Metallica songs for you. I'm going to name 175 Metallica <laughs> songs for you in the order in which they were written. I'm going to name all the songs they haven't played live. <laughs> I am curious to hear what Scott's like history with Metallica was before yeah. this whole thing. And Absolutely. I know that everyone's ex- excited to talk to Scott, so we're going to get to that too, too as well. Uh, here's the deal, though. We've got a lot of listeners. We've got a lot of fans all over the world, Ethan. We are international. All over the world. I'm, and I've seen this firsthand in London yeah. with our meetup. Same, same here. And uh, we have a responsibility to these people, and we have some housekeeping to do. We do. It's time to clean up a little bit. Now, the first thing we'll say is we have a Patreon, we have iTunes. Easiest way to support the show ever is to tell your buddies about it. The second easiest way, though, uh, is to go to iTunes and leave a positive review. doesn't mm-hmm. matter what country you're in. If you don't listen on a way that has iTunes, I don't know how you can do that. I don't know if you can leave reviews on Stitcher. I don't know. You can just like and subscribe. We're on all the socials, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, 
come follow us on all that shit. We Facebook, have a lot of fun over MySpace, there. MySpace, Friendster, all those. We're on. Yeah, <laughs> LinkedIn is probably where we get the most our, traction. And our next podcast contest is uh, you can be one of our top eight friends on MySpace. Ooh. So look forward to that for a limited time only, only for about twelve hours. Yeah, that's it. Uh, if you w- want to get involved on a deeper level, of course, the Patreon p a t r e o n dot com slash Metal Podcast. Kevin Van Dam made a very nice comment because uh, our interview with Chad Z, James's guitar tech, is already on Patreon, even though that episode is not going to be available to uh, the public for probably another month, maybe. And, uh, and might, might I say real quick, yes, huge, a huge uh, round of applause for Clint Wells for conducting the interview on his own. I had a session thing that came up that I couldn't get out of, and Clint uh, grabbed the reins and, and led that steed into battle. Well, needless to say, we missed you. It's just that we've been, we, we, I've been emailing Chad on and off since January. It's been a while, yeah. And I know that they're about to go to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so we just, they just came home from Europe and now they did SM2. So right. the, the, the windows can close really quick. So, yeah. um, and Ch- I'll, I'll say this for everyone who's interested in that interview that's going to be one of our coolest episodes. Awesome. Chad was so likable and informative and, incredibly generous with his information right and i believe in 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 uh in my careful hands as a questioner as a host made him feel really comfortable uh, i don't i didn't get the sense at all that he felt guarded about anything he talked very openly about james about getting the job what the job's like cool good and bad um he seems very grateful for the work he does. He he likes Metallica. He's a fan, and it's awesome. It was a really cool. It was the exactly the kind of interview that me personally, as a fan of Metallica, would love to hear. Very cool. And I want all of our listeners to know that as we inch our way towards talking to the boys, that that will always be our number one goal is to ask them the questions that fans want to know the answers to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. we're not journalists. We're not industry insiders. We're fans. We're influencers, too. Well, we are influencers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that interview is on Patreon, and I did want to... Kevin Van Dam said this, which I thought was really sweet, um, about the Patreon. He said, as I find this as I look through my phone, he said, I support or have supported many creators on Patreon, and there's still no better value on the entire site than Metal Up Your Podcast. Wow. Which is really cool. That's really cool. Thanks, thanks, KVD. So, you know, it's five bucks a month if you can spare it. If you can't, we totally get it. I mean, yeah, I've, had, sure. I've had seasons of my life where I literally could not afford that. But right. it is available over there. We got four or five new patrons. Ethan's going to read their names right now. Yeah, we got some new ones. You have Kylie. We have Oliver. Uh, this is a tough one. Mornhenweg. Mornhenweg. Uh, Jason Berkowitz and Daryl Fryer. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. We love the patrons. We appreciate it. At the very it. least, you get a shout out on the immortal show, Metal Up Your Podcast, immortal. which will live on. In the ether and the internet, long after we're gone, Ethan. But will it live on? In the portals! In the portals of time! Please, 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 when the show ends, please take our hard drives, send them through thine portals. In thine portals as well, you'll find the drives that are hard, a and really, then all of a sudden Torben shows up. A really good friend of mine and the other guitar player in Ronnie's band, and a really smart, cool dude who likes Tool and great music and all this. Yeah. When he was in his high school days, was a massive Magic the Gathering guy. Yeah, he did all that crap, D and D, Magic the like all of it. Yeah. When we get riffing on that voice on the bus, the just the sheer vocabulary he can pull from. Oh, I'll bet. Just from all the 
the culture of that shit. Well, even just the names of all the all the, the cards and the magic, and, yeah, totally, <laughs> dude. Yeah. It's pretty funny. Phone Ferris, on. I can't even make up one. He says Mortal Coil a lot, which I Mortal I've Coil, the Mortal Coil. <laughs> I heard a funny thing. Uh, who was it? it I can't remember. It had to do with vampires, and someone <laughs> said something about vampiric fortitude. There we go. I would like some of that. Yeah, vampiric fortitude sounds tasty. When I was a kid, I loved horror movies, as I still do. Yeah. And I guess in many ways, I still am also a kid. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know what a lot of the... Um, I didn't really understand a lot of what was happening in vampire movies. I just liked right. vampire movies. Yeah, they were fun. And one night, I was in a big car with my family going out to eat, and my older cousin, who I thought was the coolest guy in the world, and some of his friends, who were also very cool to me, mm-hmm. who wanted nothing to do with me because I was a little six-year-old nerd. Right. And I was, for some reason, pretending to be a vampire in the okay. car. And no one was liking it. No one was <laughs> like, oh, this is funny. Everyone was like, will you please quit being weird and pretending to be a vampire? Was it one of those, like, vo- were you doing like the voice, like, I want to suck your blood? Like, exactly. Okay. But even shittier, like, oh, I'm a vampire. Oh, <laughs> I'm creepy. They're I like, have fangs. They're like, will you stop doing that? Stop what? <laughs> being what I am, a vampire? <laughs> but one of my big, uh, one of my big, slogans that I shouted out, which I had seen in the movies, but no idea what it meant. I went, I am not a virgin. <laughs> not knowing what that even Well, because vampires wanted, had to kill virgins, you know what I mean? There's right, an obsession yeah. with virginity in a lot of these old horror movies. Yeah, totally. And I just remember the whole... I, yeah, I didn't know what it meant. It was some kind of badass shit that vampires say. Like, they, well, I yeah. want to kill the virgin. <laughs> and the whole car erupted in laughter, but I could immediately tell it wasn't the kind of laughter that makes you feel good. Yeah, it wasn't like, I, I hit that one out of the park. It wasn't. Yeah, it was distinctly. Immediately you're like, what does virgin mean? <laughs> yeah, whoops. I definitely said a word that triggered this car into laughter. Yep, absolutely. Anyway, there's that story for, for everyone forever. Yeah. Uh, we get emails all the time. Metal Up Your Podcast Show at gmail.com. We, we love to hear from the family. Check in. Patreon. Uh, the patrons get priority access when we read them. We like to read five a week. And this week's no different, Ethan. We're going to dip right now into what we like to call the, the email, email corner. Okay. Our first email is from Cody Farmer. It says, started, uh, started, started recently listening. I'm enjoying the show so much. I started uh, back it up from episode one. I've burned through about 30 or so, and I love it. That's cool. Very nice. Uh, here's an idea I think would be fun. We like fun things. Kinda. I love fun shit. I love fun things on t-shirts. What if you set up an NCAA-style bracket putting Metallica albums against each other uh, and had a guest um, on with each person voting on who moves on in each round of the tournament or maybe even setting up some sort of type of pa- fan poll for a couple rounds? Love the show, and by the way, I'm not offering any free beers because Clint shit talk Kentucky in one of the early episodes. You guys are the shit, Cody. What did I say about Kentucky? I don't Do remember, remember that early on. I don't know. Could it have been Inception of Papa or something? Like, well, hmm. I mean, could it have been that Kentucky sucks? I don't know. I like I like Kentucky. <laughs> I mean, Kentucky's fine. Louisville's, a, Louisville's an awesome town. Louisville's all right. Lexington's all right. I think Louisville is a really good town. No, would you ever live there? Yes, I would. Okay, well, I would live there. Oh, well. I, I, I've just outside of playing shows, I, I have spent a lot of time there. Let me. I really enjoy. Let it. me say this. Let me. Let me for Cody and whomever else. Okay. Uh, I think Tennessee sucks. Uh, I do not like living in the South. I've been here my whole life. I'm from Alabama, and I always imagined well, that at this stage of my life, I would be somewhere else. <laughs> uh, but Nashville is like Transylvania. 
I'm not a virgin. Um, uh, I, I'm very grumpy about destination. I think Nashville's great. Nashville is a wonderful city mm-hmm. in a really horrible state. And uh, I, I hate the values of the South, and I feel no connection to it whatsoever. Right. I'm and Kentucky's you. just part of that for me. I don't give a fuck about Georgia. Uh, I, think, I think the coolest city down here is New Orleans. New Orleans is pretty awesome. I, Atlanta, my wife just got offered a job making twice the amount of money, but we'd have to move to Atlanta. That conversation lasted about six seconds. I would never live in Atlanta. See what I'm saying? No offense to it. Well, Atlanta to me, it reminds me of like the southern version of LA. Now, it's massive. There's way more traffic than we'll ever have in Nashville. It's just, I already, I love living in the South. I do like a lot of things about the state. I'm with you on the values of, of Tennessee. It but you like the really... South in a way that you're from California. Right, that's the thing. You grew I, up in yeah. Southern California in the, probably one of the coolest places in America. Right. And you came here, and now the South to you is like it's like quaint and cool and interesting and different. And yeah, see, I've, I, I, yeah, I've, I, I've spent most of my my moving years downsizing in cities. Right. So it's like I grew up like just south of L.A. and then mm-hmm. I moved in Orange County. Then it was like this little smaller beach town, San Clemente. Then from there to Nashville, and um, I don't know. I just I like. And I like getting outside the city and going to like on hikes to, you know, me and wife go find like waterfalls or whatever, go out to the lake and kayak. I love that stuff. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, there are nice things about the South, I suppose. Right. There's beauty here that's cool, but there's a lot of green beauty in Connecticut and mm-hmm. in the, you know, in New England and the weather in the Pacific Northwest and Southern California. My favorite city in the country is San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So hopefully Scott Pingle, after we have this conversation, they will invite me and my whole family to come live with him. I probably will. Yeah. Um, but here's what's most important about this whole thing. And I know Cody was just playing, being fun because he says you guys are the shit. Uh, I love people everywhere. I don't care where you're from. Right. There are good people and there are bad people everywhere in the world. And so it's not personal uh, if I don't like Kentucky. <laughs> but uh, believe me, I've been there lots. Yeah. And uh, it's not uh, spoken from ignorance. It's, in my opinion, from personal experience. Also, it reminds me of a time that I was at Mercy Lounge. Did you ever used to go to Mercy Lounge? Oh, yeah, all the time. Ton. I never go there anymore. I but... used to go to Mercy Lounge before we had the, that roundabout right there. Remember that whole street never existed. Remember oh, that? I don't. To go from East Nashville to the Mercy Lounge, you had to get, you, you went over the bridge and yeah. then made a left on Fourth and kind of weave, bobbed yeah. and weaved through a bunch of shit. Now you can just go straight, hit the roundabout, and you're at Mercy Lounge. Oh, the roundabout oh, yeah. at, on uh, Korean Veterans, the bridge. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't remember when that wasn't here, but yeah. I do remember being on at Mercy Lounge. It was packed on the back porch, which was packed. Dude, it's the smallest porch ever, but everyone go out there and just talk and smoke and right. get away from the loud music. And they had like a hot dog hamburger guy out yep, there. Yep. And I remember it was so packed, like you literally like you just couldn't move. It was like being at a packed punk rock show. Yeah. And like Britney from Alabama Shakes was out there and everyone was fucking going crazy. Oh my god. And I remember talking about how much I hated Memphis. Yeah. And this guy turns around and is like, You wanna say that again? And he's literally wearing a shirt that says I love Memphis. <laughs> <laughs> you want to say that again? And you know what I said? I said, "Yeah, dude, I think Memphis sucks. I see that you're wearing a sh- I see that you're very proud of Memphis. Chill out, dude. If you ca- if, if I didn't know you and, and I heard you say something like, you know, like, man, fuck Orange County, blah blah blah. I'd probably agree with you actually, but <laughs> at least some of it. But or like, you know, like or even now, I've, I've lived in Nashville currently 14 years. And someone said, man, fuck Nashville. I wouldn't be like, would you say motherfucker? I would ask why. Like, oh, why? Yeah. It wouldn't be like, say that again. I right. guess you didn't know I'm from a little town called Nashville. It'd be different if somebody was like insulting my wife. Well, of course. That merits that reaction. 
But the thing is, if someone said, man, I, if someone like vehemently hated Nashville, I would just be curious. Why? I would be exactly as curious if someone was like, oh my God, Nashville is just heaven. I love nothing more than Nashville. Yeah. I'd be curious about that too. Say that again. Like, really? Why? What, what do you <laughs> love about it, motherfucker? Anyway, all that to say, thanks for the email, Cody. Yeah. Now, we're having to take a little bit of a detour on the emails. Uh, because we uh, we printed out some redundant emails here. You don't have to say we, I did it. No big whoop. Uh, <laughs> Chad Walswick, who I believe is a patron from last week, he wrote in, hello, podcast, and I believe he's doing that mega Davis. By the way, update from uh, yeah. Dave Mustaine, he is doing really well. Yeah, it's on the, it's on the up. It's, he's on his last round of treatments, and all of his doctors are saying that everything looks really good for amazing. remission. Great. So congrats to Dave Mustaine. Yeah. And in, in honor of his progress medically, I'm not going to do the voice. Perfect. <laughs> so, hello, podcast. Wow, guys. So, a couple months ago, I got a new job. I do some traveling. Was looking to fill in some drive time. Been meaning to check out the podcast for a while. I have some chapter buddies who've listened for a long time and even heard about the chapter from a comment section of Metal Up Your Podcast and recommended the show. He says, damn, I'm in deep now, uh, and I almost feel like I need to apologize for not being on board previously. Glad to say I'm a supporter now. No need to apologize, my babies. Come on, baby. We're just glad you're here. Hey, keep it cool. We don't judge when you get on the train. Be cool. We're Be just cool. glad you're on the train, baby. That's right. He says, I've been so deep into Metallica for over three-fourths of my life, a bit offline during the shaky Saint something years. Saint Anger, by the way. Oh, oh right, right, right. I guess. Saint, Saint Lulu. <laughs> he says, somehow I convinced my parents to let me go see my first concert in 1989 on the Damage Justice Tour when I was only 12. Hell yeah. Been to a handful of shows throughout the decades. In the last couple of years, I met a bunch of diehards and black ticket holders from all over, which has made the whole Metallica thing even cooler. Anyway, I've mostly dug into the early episodes of the podcast, but jumped up to some recent episodes, and it's cool to hear how the show has evolved. It has. Very sad to hear that the What Really Gets My Dick Hard intro is left that really got my dick hard. Oh, my. We never should have had that. It just kind of seems... Uh, I, I remember I, I made that intro. And we liked it. I think it was I think it was the, the night we recorded our very first episode. I made it before you came over. I'm like, hey, what do you think of this? Took a clip from each record. Because I just thought it was funny. but that And it was, but that was when the only people who ever heard us was me and you. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, and I don't know if we ever thought that tens of thousands of people would listen. And we did that for like almost 100 episodes. By the way, we're coming up on a million downloads. It's insane. Wow. The platinum. <laughs> um, platinum downloaded will podcast. Will James Hetfield be delivering my platinum certificate himself, I think once we go or, diamond, he will. Um, I think the change we made is good. I think so, too. I, I appreciate that some people liked it, though. Oh, yeah, for sure. I actually prefer the new one we have. I do, too. Yeah. Uh, he ends his email by saying, we'd love to talk uh, sometime if our paths cross. Beer and pizza or burgers on me. Not for Ethan, who's a vegan and not a virgin. Uh-oh. You don't, you don't know that. I don't have any kids. You can't prove it. Uh, that's, that's actually true. Cal Callie. Paul. <laughs> Paul. Paul? Uh, he goes on to say, hit me up if you guys happen to swing through Fargo on your touring. I'm in the chapter, I'm the chapter head, for oh. chapter 518, Fargo the Beltholes. Wait. Fargo the Beltholes. Weren't well, those guys at our party? It sounds like it. I mean, it sounds familiar. And I wish we got in this email last spring. I was in Fargo for t uh, two days. I was in Fargo. Isn't like Fargo? We call it Fargo Vegas. It's like, <laughs> it's crazy. I'll tell you, talk about getting like weirdly angry about where you're from. I hate it when people call Nashville Nash Vegas. Oh, it's the worst. Most it's people the that worst. Most people that live here don't call it that. I had a friend. No one who lives here calls it that. Zero right. percent. Right. Maybe people that just moved here from like LA and they're like, oh, I love Nash Vegas. <laughs> Read about it in some dumb magazine. I had a, my, a buddy who I am pretty damn close to, touring musician, 
from Dallas. He is playing here tonight. I didn't know because I've been out of town. I get a text and said, yo, dude, playing, this is the other one I hate. East Nasty? No, playing Nashy tonight. Nashy? I've never even heard nashy. of that. Nashy. I don't like that one. Give me lotion. My legs are a little Nashy. <laughs> I just think that if you don't live in Nashville or, 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 or maybe... Uh, you're new to Nashville. All those names sound fun. It's like I've, oh, Nashville, yep. Nashy, what a Cashville or whatever. Cashville. Know. That's actually the name of a hip hop record of a guy from Nashville. Um, here's what I've never done in any city I've ever traveled to ever, and I've been traveling to cities for 20 years. Yeah, I've never taken the name of it and put some sort of hip abreve on it. You know who? Let's do- just give let's give a few a shot. You know who doesn't say Frisco? People from San Francisco. I have called San Francisco San Fran. Some people will say that. Uh, or like in California, we never said, I live in SoCal. Some Actually, some like bros and surfers do. I never said NorCal or SoCal. <laughs> I never did. Thank God. I, w- I have said Cali before. Chi-Town. That one sucks. Nope, never done it. I, I, will, I, w- I don't like that. I, one of the only cities which I... I've I, never called New York the Big Apple. And I, sincerely, never. Yeah, I do it jokingly. Right. Um... The one city in America that I can honestly say I don't feel uncomfortable calling it by its abbreviated name mm-hmm. is Philly. Philly, of course. Philly is definitely Philly's the first name of Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the nickname. Philadelphia is like the 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 surname. I've done Philly. Yeah, Philly. I think it's a pass. But I've never called it like Chili Philly. I've never been like <laughs> Chili Philly or whatever. I've never tried to put a weird rhyme on it, and I've never been like. Well, hitting up the Windy City this weekend. Yeah. Hot, what? Hot Lana. Never done it. Uh-uh. Not one time. Uh-uh. Gross. I don't what are some other ones? Um, Boise, am I going to Boise? <laughs> oh, Boise. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or I've never said like... I've never said I'm going to Salt Lake shitty. Keep Portland weird. That's more of a slogan or something. But That's they, Austin, they, But too. they have it painted on their fucking buildings. Austin has a Keep Austin weird vibe, yeah. too. Um. We should paint inside of my house that says make Nashville weird. Yeah. Make Nashville weirder. I wish it was more weird. Well, we're at Tangent City here at the yeah, top. We, we really if, are. if Scott and his beloved family are listening to this episode waiting at the interview, I'm sorry. You may want to fast forward yeah, just about go 15 minutes. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, to the well, family. thanks for the email, Chad. And of course, thanks for hopping on the Patreon train. It really means a lot to us. Uh, Absolutely. Looking, looking forward to talking with you some more later, homie. All right. Next email is from Mark Waple. He says, Hey, guys, I am sad to say I have only just found your show, but I'm stoked. To say that I've just found your show and I love it. He's sad and happy. Wow. That's cool. Life is life is not black or white, Ethan. Life is... You know what the band Live has a song called? The Beauty of Grey. Wow. I love Grey. <laughs> now, Grey is my favorite color. That's I love, my I love the Counting Crows. <laughs> impersonation. Um, I got to chat into an American guy called... <laughs> what? <laughs> what's, what's so funny? I just love the idea of you at like a party. Like that's one of your things, isn't Adam Duritz <laughs> impersonation? I only, I only, <laughs> and it's just you saying "Grace, my favorite color." <laughs> Take the only line on that song. I've never been a big Counting Crows guy, and I always oh, that's I, Mr. Jones. I dude. know. I always hated that song. Oh, man, that's a wonderful song. Great lyric. Hey, man. Another thing. I, another uh, term. I listen, Clint. Agree to disagree. <laughs> Okay, we already disagree, so we don't do agree to it. You don't think that's a good song? It's okay. It's fine. I just, I, I, maybe I overheard it back when it came out or something, but that was the line that always, like, whenever it came on the radio, it was like, now oh, gray is my favorite color. <laughs> there it is again. And I was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> oh, jeez. I haven't made Clint laugh this hard in a while. 
I've just had such a long day, man. I'm just glad to be not yeah. doing what I was doing today. <laughs> All right. Anyways, Mark Waple says, I got chatting to an American guy called Chris in the early morning queue for the Metallica show in Munich. I think I know who this Chris is. Uh-oh. Um, Chris Poland, former guitarist of Megadeth. Uh, I believe Chris Duritz, Adam's brother. <laughs> Clint just took a drink. He can't swallow. Gray's not his favorite color. No. <laughs> Gray's not my favorite, favorite color. color. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Uh, he said, I believe he was uh, very active on the forums and was showing me pics of his SMN2 self-designed tuxedo he is wearing to the shows. I think it's Chris Yerges. Oh. Uh, lucky bastard. Anyways, he was raving about you guys and even played me some... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Impromptu. I don't hate the Counting Crows. This is a great song, man. It's four chords. I'd like to see old Scott Pingle do a bass version. <laughs> Scott, if you're listening to this intro, if you've lasted this long in the intro, which is normally not this long, could you do a uh, double bass version of Mr. Jones for us? Another thing I promise you, Scott, is I do not do drugs. So yeah, wait, wait, No just... drugs are consumed during this episode. Just this episode. Uh, anyways, he said he was raving about you guys and he even played me the uh, the reggae version of M- Memory to explain what you guys are all about. That's and awesome. that's what we're all about, our reggae covers. <laughs> that's what we're all about. Well, after coming back to the UK, I've been listening to your shows and going back to a number of the old ones. Uh, no, I'm not going to mention anything about ice, uh, Clint chewing ice. Uh, I don't want the abuse, he says. Mm. Uh, I love that you pull apart um, from a music point of view and aren't afraid to call out the bad stuff as much as the good stuff. You guys have great insights and views that uh, uh, already have me going back and listening to tracks I would not normally I would normally skip over if I had the chance to do so. Um, well, you guys are the, uh, the soundtrack to my commutes in and out of London, and therefore uh, being a patron just seemed like the right thing to do. Well, thank you, Mark. Um, uh, but, uh, both to express my support and in some small way say thank you. If you're ever over here, I would be buying you beers on a regular basis anyways. Uh, so to me, it's just the same. Uh, cheers, and you guys keep on doing this. You rock, Mark Waple. He, and he, he says, yes, the surname sucks, but it's it, 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 it's easy, really, like maple, staple. Mm. Uh, well, thanks for being a patron, of course. Absolutely. And uh, man, it's it's. I wish we could have met up when I was just in London a few weeks ago. We next, love meeting up. <clears throat> yeah, if you guys want to check out our, our various websites, mine's clintwellsmusic.com. Is yours Ethan Luck? EthanLuck.com. I, I try to update my, my I have a touring In section. fact, that's not even that best of a place. The best place to really keep up with us in touring is our socials. Just uh, Really, Instagram, you're probably more active on Twitter than I am, but yeah. Instagram's kind of my, right. my number one. Um, well, I'm going to cut housekeeping early so we Let's can get it. on with our conversation with Scott. I know we're yeah. anxious to speak with him and learn about SNM too. And this is before I just play all of August and everything after for you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that was the email corner and we're going to be right back with a little friend Scott. And in the meantime, I think we were going to hear for a few words from Torben. I think you're right. All right. Torben? Torben, is that you? Of course it is. What are you doing up there? You want a flying carpet? Yes, this is my magic flying carpet. I, I use it a lot to uh, locate where my, my VIP seats are. And uh, uh, since I've already been back to see Lars, I thought it'd be a good idea to hover around and find out where Scott is hiding out so I could talk to him about his bass solo he's doing. Well, this is crazy. I mean, I knew you'd be here at SNM too. I just 
thought for sure you'd be backstage somewhere. It's really crazy to see you out here with your flying carpet. Well, like I said, I just I don't want to have a word with Scott here soon. You know, he's a very gifted double bassist, and uh, I just I think that uh, if I could give him some wisdom, that would be a good thing. Right. Well, are you having any luck finding him? I mean, you seem to be wasting quite a lot of time talking to me. By the way, a huge fan. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Thank you. I co-host a podcast called Metal Up Your Podcast, and it's dedicated to the life's work of your son. I've seen, I've seen lots of these shows around the arena. Yeah, we, we're lucky. We have a lot of fans, yeah. It's, it's great to see. It's a, a, a bit of a community, I think. And um, I, I think Scott would like this. Yeah. Maybe if you find Scott, maybe you can give him some tennis lessons. Look, there he is. All right, Torben. Well, thanks for stopping by. It's so good to see you. Enjoy your conversation with Scott. Goodbye. the wonderful Scott Pingle of the San Francisco Symphony. How you doing, Scott? I'm feeling good, man. How are you doing today? We are doing great. We're so grateful for your time. I want to start off by thanking your wife for accommodating our schedule and making it possible for you to be here with us. So thanks to her for us. Oh, oh yeah. She's the best. <laughs> and then I also want to say here at the top, man, just on behalf of tens of thousands of Metallica fans, not only that we're at the gigs, but also just across the world, how... Uh, impressed and how grateful we are for your performance in the whole gig, but yeah. specifically, of course, your tribute to Cliff Burton. What an amazing performance. Uh, everyone loves it, dude. So yeah. congrats on that. Well, thank you. That means a lot to me. That's um, I wanted it to be something that was meaningful uh, for all the people that knew him and loved him. You know, that's uh, what better thing can you do in the world and you know do some something meaningful for someone else yeah agreed agreed was this something uh you composed yourself because uh, i noticed that there was a lot of like uh there was parts of anesthesia and then there was parts that you just kind of were playing this, these beautiful notes low stuff even before yeah. you clicked on the overdrive or distortion or whatever yeah um, it was almost like you, you you made this you made this um Cliff Burton tribute sandwich and you had your slices of bread and all the Cliff Burton meat in the middle. It, it was yeah. really cool. You kind of went in and out of, of the original tune. Was that yeah. something that you kind of had free will to do that on your own? And I promise that'll be our last sandwich metaphor for the entire <laughs> interview. <laughs> That's funny. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was, it was, uh, my concept, uh, from the beginning. I mean, they, well, the, the, Michael Tilson Thomas, the music director, uh, came and spoke to me, and he said that they were brainstorming different ideas uh, about you know ways that they could do different things on the Metallica show, and and he asked if I had any particular ideas about that, and I just kind of stood there for a minute, and I said, and it came to me, and I thought, you know what, I think I do have an idea, but let me get back to you. Uh, I need to see if I can pull it off. So we were actually out on the road on tour, doing a U.S. tour uh, at that point. And so as soon as I got back, uh, I started listening to different versions of Cliff's solo. 
And I, I, because I was familiar with it, I sh- maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I was a Metallica fan uh, and still am, uh, but I listened to them pretty uh, relentlessly <laughs> when I was, uh, you know, in high school and whatnot. Yeah. And um, uh, so I was already well aware of Cliff. And um, and he was an important influence in me even deciding to want to pursue the bass too, which I can get into more later. But wow. uh, anyway, I just had this thought of how cool would it be for me to play uh, anesthesia, but bow it. Uh, you know, it would be very unexpected. And but I didn't want it to be just. Compl- I wanted it to be mainly about Cliff, but I wanted to sort of uh, give some of my own homage to him as well and so i mean i can get into very explicit details about all of my note choices and everything sure. i did with that solo i mean i uh, i don't know if now is the right time you want me to do that or i can wait till later well yeah uh, let's let's actually go back a little bit then so you say you yeah. were you were that's one of the things that people have been really curious about is i mean yeah. you play in the san francisco symphony which is uh, world-class musicians are in that symphony yeah. the symphony world obviously disparate from the sort of hard rock backgrounds that most of us are familiar with so it's interesting yeah. to us to hear that you know the two worlds collide so to speak you know, mm-hmm. when you started playing music, was it, did you start with electric bass and bands in high school or how did you get to the San Francisco symphony? Oh yeah. So, um, so I started playing electric bass first when I was about 15 years old. Um, okay. I remember my first bass was a Yamaha BB 1000 S and I had this little PV 60 watt amp and that's mm, nice. what, uh, what I bought. And, uh, I think I bought it used and, um, in part, I played other instruments before that. I played cello, I played piano, I played trumpet. Um, but once I got my hands on, uh, that electric bass, it was like, this is what I want to do. And I just, I just love it. And, and so I was already familiar with Metallica and I, um, but then, uh, my sister sang in this band and, and, uh, one of the members of the band turned me on to, uh, weather report and various fusion bands. So I got familiar with Jocko hmm. and when I heard Jocko play, I, that I, that was just sealed the deal. I was like, "All right, this is this is just incredible." And I can I can even point to a very specific lick that he played in the Heavy Weather album with Weather Report uh, in the Birdland tune. Uh, when I heard it, just it just moved me so much that I was like, "I want to make those kinds of sounds." <laughs> And then he also does the the uh, harmonic stuff with his thumb, yeah. Uh, when he's playing the melody, like all just there's so it's so creative. His use of the instrument was so creative and so inventive. And and same thing goes for Cliff. His use of the instrument, but also but in particular his use of effects, right? Mm-hmm. Is very sort of orchestral. I didn't think of it that way at the time, but at the time I just just liked what I heard. Right. Uh, but I look back on it now from this perspective, and it's uh, it's very sort of symphonic in a way, the way he would use his effects, and uh, and so that also influenced a bit with the way that I uh, constructed this solo. And um, so yeah, so I going back, I I did start on electric bass, and then when I decided, I actually at that point I still kind of wanted to go to art school. But then once I got into electric bass, started taking it more seriously, and then I started getting gigs. Uh, in fact, playing in my sister's band, um, and we did covers of Tower of Power and Earth, Wind and Fire. So I was getting to know Rocco Prestia and Verdine White and these just amazing uh, musicians in these uh, different bands. And uh, so I got was getting into you know funk and fusion music and a lot of horn band stuff, uh, which was in just a joy and um what part of the country are you from oh i'm I'm sorry i'm from madison wisconsin okay oh, wow yeah, okay wow 
and those people that are that are familiar with that area, I actually the a town of McFarland. But if I said McFarland, no one would know where it is. It's a suburb of Madison, <laughs> I, so I just say Madison. I have heard. I've had. Heard, I have heard of that. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I've. T- I mean, I, I, uh, you've probably Clint toured through Madison quite a bit too. So. Oh, absolutely. There's a yeah. great right in the center of town in that little square. There's a really great restaurant there called the Old Fashioned, I believe. Is that correct, Scott? Oh, is that that is that the place with the the famous hamburger? Yes. Yeah, it has like an egg on top and all that. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's a, it's a protein bomb. It's so good. <laughs> I always go to Ian's Pizza when I'm in Madison. Oh, that one I don't know. Ian's. I, don't know. I started. I think it's a Milwaukee chain, but there's a, f- a couple in Madison. And it's like it's like you know over the top pizza. Scott, like, are you familiar with this really quaint, uh, rare burger place in Madison called Wendy's? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. You, ever, you ever check that out? Well, no, actually, the, the places that I would hit after gigs when I was uh, you know in high school and college was like either sometimes we'd hit George Webb, which mm-hmm. is like a you know greasy spoon, or yeah. there was this place called the Pine Cone. It was like a truck stop, hmm. like halfway between Milwaukee and Madison. I would hit that a lot. And my favorite thing to get at these greasy spoon restaurants was a ham and cheese omelet and a chocolate malt. That was like my stand that's how I judged all of these like late night greasy spoon places. Do you have good breakfast? Do you have good dessert? Uh, right. That's exactly, all, I want. Yeah. all I want. What kind of gigs were these you were doing in your sister's band? Were they in clubs or what? Uh, sometimes they were club dates. A lot of times they were like weddings or parties, you know, it was, it was a band. They're still around actually as a band called the wall of sound. And mm. I was in the Genesis of that band. Oh, they, cool. they still play all these years later. Um, and, uh, With your sister. Yeah. Well, no, my sister, she left the band after a couple of years and I actually stayed in the band. Okay. Uh, longer. And then, um, after moving away to, uh, college, uh, then I, it was just, it was just, I was going to school in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire. Uh, it's about an hour east of Minneapolis. It was not practical for me to stay in the band with their right, schedule. Right. I just, I just couldn't get to the other side of the state. So you're, you're you know? discovering Jocko and like jazz fusion. What did that do to your rock sensibilities? Did it, did it integrate well with that? Or did it sort of pull you to a more sort of cerebral way of thinking about music? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, uh, um, there is some crossover in the energy between these different types of, of, of playing, but um, uh, yeah, I guess yeah, I guess you could say that when you get into jazz music in particular, because of the harmonic language, the more jazz influence you get, uh, yeah, the more cerebral it can. Become. That's just a nice way of saying that rock and roll becomes dumber. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Right, right, <laughs> I mean, right. I, I I don't actually believe that. I, I think that there's also um, a lot of to, not to sound like snobby or anything but profundity in simplicity it doesn't have to be complicated to be meaningful and i think that's a big mistake that is made in academia sometimes and uh and also in even the classical music world there is a certain elitism and it seems like this is the cynical side of me speaking here but almost seemed like some composers were writing to be clever and to impress their composer friends or do something radical and new and more complicated rather than doing something that is pretty meaningful. Right, I think right, we, yeah. there was a, there was a loss of, of a lot of audiences uh, due to that. And um, I don't know, maybe that's just a phase it needed to go through, but it, I think it's come on the other side of that. I mean, audience uh, audiences will be the ultimate deciders on that kind of thing. But. There's probably composers out there that wouldn't take on this Metallica gig, right? Oh yeah. Out of principle, maybe. Are you seeing composers, or you mean performers? Uh, well, uh, or I guess both, or, yeah, or like performers, the, maybe. Yes, maybe performers. Yeah, people who are, who maybe have that kind of like strictly classically trained background, who might be you know somewhat elitist, or you yeah. know, or maybe traditional to 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 the to the genre, 
and not even consider like, oh, this could be used in a heavy metal band. Yeah, that that certainly could happen. I think with younger players that it's more a part of their life. Sure. Uh, it's, so it's more mainstreamed in some ways, like we grew up with it. I think that that's a, that less likely. Um, and also, I think even with the older players, at least in our orchestra, there was a number of players that, that did not want to play. And it wasn't because they turned their nose up at it. It was either they were, just their schedule didn't allow for it, or in some cases, it was just going to be the volume. I was about to make a um, joke. It, it was too loud. <laughs> it was too loud. Yeah. And well, and, and that's the thing is, is they, you know, we're exposed to it so much, uh, you know, the high volumes on stage and, you know, right. with brass instruments and, and, uh, and percussion and over years. And as you get older too, I mean, it just, it becomes more of a burden on your body. And, sure. and, and so I respect that some of them, they were just like, it, it was just not going to be right for them. So, um, that's fine. But I was I wasn't gonna miss it for anything. <laughs> oh, dude. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, like you know, mentioned earlier that you know you you grew up listening to Metallica and getting into Cliff, and and that's a big reason why you play bass. So, I mean, I, I'd imagine it was a huge honor to be able to be a part of that. Oh, I was so excited, and, and uh, as I, uh, you know, there there was the the first s and M show twenty years ago, and I, that was I was still in school at that point. I wasn't in San Francisco Symphony yet, and I just remember thinking how amazing it must have been to get to do that show. That must have been just such a blast. And it's actually kind of funny. My brother is to this day, you know, still a just diehard Metallica fan. And um, and when I first got the job in San Francisco back in 2004 i was on the phone with him and, and he's like so you're moving to san francisco so what is, who is it that you're working with now and i said oh, it's called the san francisco symphony he's like oh okay cool and then he stops dead in his tracks he's like wait a minute is that the orchestra that recorded with metallica <laughs> mm-hmm. and i was like yes that's them he's like dude that's so awesome you know he just was freaking out yeah. he thought it was the coolest even though he has no idea you know he didn't realize that getting a job you know i'm the principal base of the san francisco symphony that's like becoming like you know getting on like the golden state warriors relatively speaking I mean, right. it's like or, or the um you know the new york yankees you know that kind of thing uh, yeah like, i wanted to talk about that scott for a second i've had a few close friends that have played in some of the orchestras and symphonies in whatever towns i've been in and uh i don't think the let's talk just for a second i don't know if the common person who's not a musician or knows this world knows that how hard it is to get those gigs and that when you get that gig, most people stay in those gigs for life. I mean, there are even yeah. 25 musicians that played with you a couple of weekends ago that were even at the first one 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. So can you talk a little bit about how hard it is to land one of those spots? Yeah, sure. It's, it's, uh, it's extremely competitive, uh, you know, cause the, uh, well, the, the different orchestras do their hiring practices a little bit differently, but sort of the basic, uh, way it goes is they put there's an opening and basically someone either has to retire or die or they or die or yeah or go to some or decide they want to go to another orchestra but usually when you get to the the high you know the higher budget orchestras like san francisco or new york or los angeles or chicago usually those are sort of uh arrival orchestras like most people you know a lot of people don't typically go anywhere else from those because you've kind of gotten up to the top right. you know at that point it, it becomes a you know, which place you'd rather live. But, um, uh, but with that said, it's not like you can just very easily go to another orchestra and you have to wait for an opening. So when one of these openings happen, they open up this audition and sometimes you'll get over a hundred applicants, uh, for the position for one chair, one, one position. And then, uh, then what happens is then they start weeding through all the resumes and have to determine, 
um, how many people to allow to have a live audition because the live audition costs money. You know, the orchestra has that they have to pay a committee. Uh, they, in some cases, they have to rent the hall from whoever perhaps owns the hall. Like for instance, in San Francisco, we don't own our hall. The city owns it. So in order to use the, the space, they got to rent it. So there's a lot of expenses involved with holding an audition. So they can't just let, you know, lots and lots of people come. They don't have the luxury of that kind of time. And so, um, so after they weed through the resumes, let's say they get a 120, 150 resumes, they'll maybe weed that down to 50 invites. They'll send out they'll, and then they'll make the other people say, um, we've, you know, we've declined your uh, application or they'll, they'll just say that, that you'll need to make a tape. So then they'll do a, a, what's called a tape round for people whose resumes just are kind of borderline. Okay. Uh, and I, or I should say, you know, in this day and age, nobody makes tapes, but you have to make a recording and, uh, of spe- specified music. And then people send in the recordings and then we sit around and listen to all of them. And then we have to vote on whether we want to hear that person live. Um, so that's, those are the first layers of screening is the resume round and then a recorded round. If you don't make it through the resume round. And then if we don't like the recording, we'll just say, sorry, this is just, uh, not going to be the right fit. And so they're not invited to the live audition. Does anyone ever advance in these rounds just by their pedigree or their, their, their name or that's going to be the resume round. If if someone has a, has an impressive resume, yes, they're going to get through. Uh, like if they're in a in a you know in a, in a peer orchestra or you know one of the higher paid orchestras that are more competitive to get into, certainly they're going to get in uh, to a live audition. And in some cases, they may be even advanced to a later round, which I can get into later. But um, so, but after you go through the resume and uh, if needed audition recording uh, screening, you get to the live auditions, and those are usually held over a few days. And there's the preliminary round, which is, uh, let's say you have over the course of maybe two days, you'll hear, say, 50 people play. Wow. Um, and then at the um, at different orchestras do it differently, but then you have regular voting if you want to advance any people uh, into the semifinal round. And so usually it'll go down, the semifinal round will be maybe maybe 15 people. We'll make that, that that cut into the semifinal round. It's stressful just to hear about it. I know I'm stressed, <laughs> stressed yeah, right I'm now. Sweating. Oh yeah, it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty cutthroat. Right, and then then everybody has to come back and then play again, uh, perhaps different repertoire, different music, um, and you're under intense scrutiny. Uh, in our orchestra, we do everything behind a screen, so we have no idea who's on the other side of that screen. Oh wow, uh, we just hear how they play. Yeah, so there's no nepotism or discrimination. It was probably kind. Metallica on, on the other side of the screen from you. You yeah. never know. It was James Hetfield. <laughs> <laughs> that also kind of sounds like what uh, what intimate time with my wife's like. It's just everything's done behind a screen. Uh, you don't know who's who's over there. <laughs> Not sure. JK, my wife doesn't listen to the show, so I'm fine. <laughs> I guess that could keep it interesting. So you went through all this, huh? I mean, this is this oh is, yeah, this is yeah. normal for someone who wants a job like that. Yeah, that's right. At this point, you're not living in San Francisco, right? Oh no, I was at that point. I was living in Charleston, so, South Carolina. Wow. So, so I covered the, all my own expenses. I was going to say, yeah, this, you're 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 covering yeah your expenses to get out there to stay in a hotel oh, yeah. or whatever. So it's costing yep. you money just to try to get through to the, oh whatever totally around. Wow. Yeah. And and don't even get me started on the cost of these instruments too. I mean, it's just like, well, yeah, it's, God. it's 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 you wouldn't believe it. I do at some point, Scott, when it when it makes sense. I do want to talk a little bit about it because I saw on your Instagram you had a two hundred and fifty year upright bass restored. 
Yeah. I mean, the, the, the antiquity and, and the cost associated with some of these instruments, too, is just so... I just don't even think... I don't think people who investigate this kind of thing know, you know? Yeah. It's such a big yeah. deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's... it's it, the, the numbers are mind-boggling. Keep taking this through the uh, audition process. It's fascinating. Yeah, so you... if you Then if you make it through the uh, semi-final round, then... The final round that that's usually cut down to maybe four or five people in the final round, and it's on average perhaps. And then that's usually the most intense round. You're out there for the longest amount of time, still behind a screen in our orchestra. Some orchestras they take the screen down at that point and they see everybody. Um, but San Francisco is always everything behind a screen. And um, so uh, yeah, so then they're interacting with you perhaps, but you can't speak. You can never speak. They can talk to you, and then anything that you want to say to the committee, you say to the proctor, and then the proctor answers for you or makes requests on your behalf because uh, they don't want to hear your voice. <laughs> wow, jeez! <laughs> Again, the similarities and parallels to my marriage are just staggering. Yeah, <laughs> this is like this is like this is like saying stuff to Darth Vader to tell to the Emperor. <laughs> like this is yeah, exactly. <laughs> like these are not the droids you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you ever try to say anything? Did you ever have to pass the slip or talk to the proctor? Or oh yeah, like there was maybe there was a request that was made and I didn't quite understand it. And I would say to the proctor, "Could you please ask them to repeat that or something like that?" And then you get to, if you get through the final round, then they take a vote, and you have to get a certain minimum number of votes to even qualify to be potentially hired. So you've gone through all this, and you still are not done, even if you're number one. They're like, yeah. now we're going to decide after, even though you're the last person standing, we're still going to decide. Depending on the circumstance, sometimes a contract can be offered at that point. Right. But um, often, especially for when it's like in my case was a principal position. So you're a leadership role of the section. They want to try you out. Um, so in so when I auditioned, there were two of us that got a qualifying vote, which meaning we met the minimum threshold to be uh, um invited to do a trial week with the orchestra and so so they then and and this is so that was all in my case it was in january of 2004 when that happened and then i didn't actually come and play with the orchestra until may so i'm in this like holding pattern wondering you know what's going to happen so then that following may I, i went and played a week with the orchestra um and the other guy had done his week as well um, and then another month went by and then finally I got a phone call from Michael Tilson Thomas and offered me the job. Wow. So, but then in that, it's still not done. So then it's, you get your first year in the orchestra is called your audition year. And so God damn, this is first, brutal. <laughs> oh yeah, it's brutal. So, so your first year, um, they have two meetings, one usually in December and the other one in April where the committee then reviews your performance and they meet with the music director and they take a vote on whether or not to allow you to have your probationary year, which is your second year. Um, and so they vote. And then if they like what they see, then they give you uh, a second year. And then you're, during your uh, probation year, then they also have two meetings uh, and discussing your performance. And they also give you feedback on anything that they want you to work oh, on. Good grief. And then finally, finally, usually in April of the second year, then they have the vote for tenure. And so then it's like academia and that it's uh, pretty difficult for you to be removed once you've gotten tenure. So it's hard to get fired. People don't often get fired. Is that what you're saying? Not very often. Yeah. I mean, you pretty much have to punch someone in the face to get fired. I mean, Uh, after a Metallica show, you (laughs) might want to... It could happen. I have two questions for you, Scott, hearing that whole process. By the way, it's amazing that you went through all that. Number one, do you think that all of that is justified? Does that seem a little much for you? Or is the job such that it requires that level of scrutiny? 
Well, that's that's just where it is at this point. I mean, it is is. what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. It's hard for me to say. I mean, there were a lot of pitfalls with uh, the way things were done in the past. Like some orchestras in Europe look at this and they just find it to be kind of silly. Like I think I'm not totally familiar with how they do it, but the Berlin Philharmonic, I think they just have people show up. The whole orchestra sits there. There's no screen person comes out and they play a bunch of different things. And then the whole orchestra votes and then I think they have various rounds, but it's it's a bit more casual. That's kind of like yeah. auditioning in Nashville. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Yeah. And, My uh, second question, um, Scott, is: Yeah, uh, are you familiar with the philosophical concept of fraud syndrome? A lot of artists have, or musicians uh-huh. can struggle with. Like, even when they're successful, there's always something in their heads that says, "Maybe you don't deserve this. Maybe right. there's people better right. than you." Blah blah. I feel like if you survive that process, you go to school, you obviously have the proclivity to get through school and train, you're confident, you're even up for this gig, you even make it through all these rounds, and then, like you did, you get the call, you make the gig. Or is there a, a sense of you where you're like, I don't deserve to be here, or do you feel like, hell yeah, I went through all that, I went through yeah. all the schooling, I can do the job, I'm ready yeah. to do it. What was your feeling about it when you got the gig? That's an excellent question. Uh, I would say it's a mix of both. There were times where I was like, yeah, I paid my dues and I got here. And then there are other times where I felt like, God, I don't really know what the hell I'm doing. Uh, I, I, uh, I don't deserve to be here, you know, because there's so much to the job that you can only learn doing it. You could never learn everything in school. Right. And it's just, there's things that you can only learn, like how to like very subtle things that it's hard to even explain, but, um, just how to listen, how to time things, Mm -hmm. uh, the culture of how the orchestra responds to impetus, such as the conductor's motion or, uh, phrasing and things. So it's, it's, um, just things that you can only be learned doing the gig. And so, I, and the more I did it, the more I realized how much I had to learn. Uh, but I stuck with it and I, I didn't give up and, and uh, I kept doing my homework and, and, uh, and practicing and I still do. Uh, but, um, uh, but now I, I feel, you know, I've been in this orchestra for 15 years now and, and I feel much more comfortable uh, doing the job. And I've played most of the major repertoire at this point, multiple times. And, um, you know, I feel like I know those pieces and, um, and so, yeah, it's just that margin of error is, uh, is uh, a lot smaller than it used to be. <laughs> Not to say that I was like a, a wreck coming in and making mistakes all the time. Cause I wouldn't have gotten the well, job. Yeah, it sounds like that. that's yeah. impossible actually for you to right. have been a wreck. I mean, it is, yeah, it's possible. Are you yeah. close with the other musicians? Are you guys friends? Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. Some of my best friends are in the orchestra. Yeah. And it's not like that in every orchestra. You know, I've heard from other colleagues in different orchestras that, you know, some of the orchestras are more business uh, oriented and people don't really hang out outside of the job and whatnot. But um, that's the culture in this orchestra is people are pretty close for better or worse. Um, You know, so uh, I I, I like it that way. I I really enjoy uh, my friendship uh, that I have with my colleagues. I love these guys. It's awesome. uh, We, um, we have, you know, good time together and, and sometimes it's frustrating and sometimes, you know, just like any relationship. Yeah, but, um, that's a highly specialized, you know, uh, art form. I guess. I mean, every art form has its own specialization. Sure. I guess, but this it's just been, and it's been around for a very long time. Right. And there's repertoire, and there's at least a hundred years. I'm told. <laughs> at yeah, le- at least. Yeah. In some co- cases, quite a bit more. But uh, um, yeah, there's just there's. It's like you have to be in some, for lack of a better analogy, you know, a language expert in many different 
languages, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different styles of composers and, and, to, and t- excuse me, time periods. And, um, but it's, it's more abstract than a language. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, yeah, there's a lot to the job. And in your case too, having, having a, a, a particular vernacular and vocabulary for Metallica to interpret the song, I'm really glad you went through that whole process. Cause now we understand like what it takes to get there. That's no joke. Yeah. Uh, it's not like someone's just pretty good at playing bass and they got a gig like that. Like it's yeah. a whole process. Well, and at, at this, at this point in history, certainly it's not that way. Uh, in times past, you know, it, it was some just basic economics, supply and demand. And, and, you know, there were times when orchestras would be like, they badly needed someone and be like, yeah, can you play a scale? <laughs> you know, can you play this simple piece? Great. You're in, you know, yeah. it was just, it, it was a matter of, you know, yeah, supply and demand. And, yeah. and, um, and, and then also as these, um, contracts, you know, especially major symphony orchestras have, have gotten better and better. It's also attracting more and more people to the profession and which has made it more competitive because it's not like there's been more positions uh, opening so or being created um, they haven't added a lot of new orchestras I mean there are there are a lot of professional orchestras in this country but um, uh, but I would say that uh, there's more people applying for the limited uh, positions than there were before would you encourage young musicians to pursue this job I would say that um, you gotta you gotta be very tenacious uh, you got to do it because you love it and you really want it and you and you uh, won't be uh, dissuaded by disappointment uh, mm-hmm. because uh, it is it's it is a, it's, it is a difficult path, but it's the same kind of thing. I mean, I imagine I can only imagine what it's like to try and become a professional athlete and the amount of uh, dedication and, uh, and and training and and hard work that it must take. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's probably has some comparability to that. But um, I mean, if you really love it and it speaks to you and and you know, just like anything that you love, it's not always going to feel that way. I mean, there's going to be times when the, the, the emotion of love is not sort of at the front. Right. <laughs> the frustration is there, and, uh, but that's where I think the deeper, more true love comes in is when you is, when you it's an action first and a feeling second. And so, you, sure. First of all, let me say um, beautifully worded, love it. And by the way, you're fired, Tony Robbins. Uh, <laughs> Scott's my new guru. By the way, dropping some truth like that. <laughs> so Scott, you got the gig. You've been in the gig for a while. You're comfortable. You're a Metallica fan. You've got feet in both of these worlds. This gig yeah. comes up, and some of your colleagues decide they want to pass on it because they the volume or their schedules. You know you want to yeah. do it. Your conductor, your boss is looking for some ideas. The band wants some unique ideas ideas to involve the orchestra, and yeah. you have the idea, right? This is all started with you, right? You told us a little. Yeah, bit that earlier. was my idea. Yeah, I still have the the email where I. Uh, sent this communicated it uh, via email to uh, to michael tilson thomas uh, ultimately just to uh, uh through through his channels but uh, where i proposed the idea i said this is what i'm going to do you know because after i spent some time and was listening to different soul different versions that cliff did was playing around in my upright uh and just realizing you know what i think this is going to work i think i can I, th- I think i can do this and uh so I, I proposed it to them, and then they got back to me and, and said, hey, this, uh, at least from the symphony perspective, this sounds like a really good idea. Uh, we'll run it by, you know, all the powers that be. And then this was like, you know, being in the twilight zone because it's like there was not much communication. From what I could tell, it was going to happen, but it was never really for sure. <laughs> right. But, but I had to proceed as if it were because it would be horrible if – 
I didn't do my homework. And, uh, and then, you know, like a few weeks before, then they say, Hey, you know, we want you to do that. And I wouldn't have enough time to prepare. That would have been much, I would, I would always regret that. So I was like, all right, I'm going to just stick my neck out on this and assume it's going to happen. I knew that I needed a different instrument. I needed an electric upright. I assumed that, uh, I guess there's probably a way to mic an upright bass with effects and have it not feed back. But at least from my limited knowledge, I assumed I would need an electric upright because of, you know, running fuzz pedals and that well, kind of thing. Because otherwise yeah. they would have had to have put a, like a lapel mic or something on one of the holes and then run that through a pedal board. And... Yeah, I, I wasn't sure how that would all work. So, right. so I... Did you, you own know, one of those I, before or no? No, never owned one, never played one. Oh, wow. oh really? And, in fact, I never even owned an effects pedal before a few months ago. Wow. And, uh, and so I um, started doing some research in different companies and um and now scott's in the white stripes (laughs) yeah this is their first bass player ever because he got a fuzz pedal now that's crazy so how did you go about researching what to get in terms of like the envelope filter or a fuzz or where did you go for that info i just started looking around on the internet like what was cliff burton's rig Hmm. and what was effects he was using there's a lot of information about that out there And, and then i um you know seeing that they used morley and then i started digging around on morley's site and i saw this cliff burton tribute fuzz fuzz wah pedal and i was mm-hmm. like well cool i'll get that um and it sounded amazing i loved it actually um i did not ultimately end up using it but it's not because of anything morally did it was just because of the way i don't have a lot of experience with pedals and the way that i uh wrote out or uh, constructed the solo um i i just needed a a real clear shot <laughs> to the uh to turn the fuzz button on um and and they put the buttons at the bottom corner of the pedal and it just made me a little bit nervous that i might miss it just for people who may not know about pedals what's got some i think the cliff burton one is like a volume expression pedal right with the on button near it so you're dealing you're kind of worrying about that volume pedal and the little button yeah a a lot of more pedals with with whether it's a volume a wah whatever the volume is the main part of the pedal and it's like right on the right bottom corner of your foot is where the switch is yeah so for you it was just a utility you needed to get something well it was utility and also the way i want where i because i was very deliberate obviously where i turn on the effects and when i wanted the wah to turn on i wanted it to be where i hit this high note and i wanted it to be in the sort of frequency range of the toe being up on the pedal. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Mm -hmm. Or whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, And so uh, I wanted a pedal where I could click it on with pressing my toe down rather than having to click something on and then move my toe, my foot over onto the pedal. Right. That just wasn't going to work compositionally for me. Um, But um, that's, that hasn't, you know, it's not, it's just the way that's designed. I just wasn't going to work for, for, for what I needed at sure. that point. But, um, but I love the sound of it. It was, it was, uh, very, very awesome. I'm very grateful for them for, to, for sending it to me. And also the other thing that was cool about when I contacted Morley, uh, I told them about what was going to happen and that I was you know, going to be doing this solo tribute thing to Cliff Burton. And, um, so then they put me in touch with Cliff's family and that's how I got wow. to uh, communicate with uh, Casey mm-hmm. Ramirez, which is uh, Cliff's uh, stepsister. And, wow. Um, and, uh, and she, she was just wonderful. And, and she then arranged for me to be able to meet uh, Ray. And so that was a really wonderful aspect of, um, of that is communicating with them in advance. And, but anyway, uh, so I, yeah, I started looking around on the internet and, 
finding out what it was that he used. And then I went to, there's a local music store here called Bananas at Large. And uh, they uh, have guys there, of course, know a lot more about this stuff than I do. Uh, and so I actually got a lesson with a guy, Dan Petrozella, who um, is a guitar player, but he just knows a lot about effects. And we listened to a couple of different versions of Cliff Solo and just listening to it. He's like, oh, yeah, he's using this here and this yeah. and there. And, and so then um, they helped connect me with uh, other pedals that I was going to need. And then Dan uh, built my pedal board for me. Um, and uh um and then he i took a lesson with him on how to use it because i was like i, I don't know how to, what, what do you do like what does this button do you wow know? i like the so, humility of a musician yeah. who went through the process you have to go to to get yeah. a seat on a san francisco symphony taking lessons from people but were you oh, su- yeah you gotta learn were you surprised scott to hear in the various live versions that basically anesthesia that made kill em all is kind of an improv yeah, it was an improv piece, and if you listen to him playing it live, it's kind of different every night, except for yeah. a few select yeah. motifs. Well, that's a testament to his musicianship, and right. that he was doing different things. Because I mean, I have a pretty extensive jazz background, and I very much appreciate that. But you, and you listen to a lot of the great improvisers, and um, sometimes things are radically different. But you can never fully remove yourself from the equation, and, and so there's always going to be certain things that there are some kind of continuity that you can kind of identify. But in this case, I mean, Cliff had to keep some things the same. So people knew what the heck it was. He's doing totally radically different. People wouldn't recognize it as anesthesia. So there were certain aspects of the form that he had to maintain, but it was very creative, the the different versions he did. And, um, and, uh, so, uh, yeah, so I, had to sort of pick and choose through the different ones that were going to work best for this this instrument and using the bow and just the way the instrument's laid out. How did you make that selection process? Was there is there anything? Well, well, one of the first things was the key because uh, in some of the versions he starts out in D minor and works his way into E minor. And there's other recordings where maybe he's using an instrument that's tuned down and it sounds like it's an E flat minor, right, which yeah. would have been a, you know um, I, I wouldn't be practical on the instrument unless I just tune the whole instrument down. It's really not necessary. It's more the notes that you're playing probably is more important than the, than the actual key that it's in. Uh, But there was one version where he did the whole thing. It sounded like, unless it was uh, the recording was sped up or something, but it sounded like everything was in E minor. And when I heard that, I was like, all right, now I have permission to do all of it in E minor. (laughs) So so whether it was accurate or not, but I, I just waiting for that. I was waiting for that because yeah. you need those open strings. You know, I was just going to say, like for for uh, people who may not know music, for it being an E minor rather than a flat key, you have all these other options available to you, even on an upright bass, right? That make yep. make things easier and sound better too to have these open string yeah. options. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. It's a much more resonant. Right. In fact, in classical music, composers sometimes, like Mahler, did this in his Ninth Symphony. He intentionally wrote the last movement in D flat. When it's the and it's a D major symphony, but the last movement is in D flat. Wow! And what that did is it darkened the sound of the strings because they they don't resonate as well. Wow! And so that was a very intentional uh, compositional and also philosophical too because it was also representing sort of death and so it was a dissension rather than ascension. So it's descending down into D flat rather than somewhere up. Very metal. Are you? <laughs> it kind of is metal. It's very metal. That's very Celtic frost. Yeah. Are you? The, are you the kind of musician, Scott, where when you hear these different versions? of cliff playing you can hear but with your ear that it's in a it's maybe half a step down or half a step up oh I, I, do i have perfect pitch i i would say i have a very good relative pitch um you know i i can generally because we we tune to an a pitch every day and so i can usually 
pick that out. Although don't ask me to sing it for you right now. Cause I'll totally blow it. If I try to sing it. And now Scott Pingle to sing <laughs> a four forty. <laughs> hey Scott, what is your, what, there, Oh, perfect. You know what? I do have perfect pitch and that was great. Uh, was it really? I, I absolutely don't know. That was D flat. Oh, okay. That was D flat minor, which is the half step status of all keys. Yeah. <laughs> Just a brief detour. What is a normal, you said you tuned to that every day. What's a normal day for you guys? Oh, um, so in the symphony rehearsal regiment, uh, we it depends on the week, uh, but we normally do four rehearsals and four concerts a week. Wow. wow. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and it's usually the same. It depends on the time. It's the time of the season, but it's usually the same program for that whole week. And then the next week is a totally different program for rehearsals and four concerts. So, do you get a piece of music that you know you guys are going to do, and you know you have a rehearsal? Do you do homework at home, or do you just wait for the rehearsal? Oh yeah. Yeah, you have to. Well, it, it depends on the piece. I mean, if it's something that's relatively simple, and I've played it a number of times, you know, I, it's probably not necessary for me to spend much time practicing it. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I mean, there's some things in the repertoire. It's just, it, it's just mechanically so complicated that I mean, you just you, just, you have to spend time training your fingers uh, how and when to move. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, in your in your bow and everything, and so you have to whip it in shape. How far in advance did you know that this S and M two gig was going to happen so i found out not that long before the public did i mean because they they figured if they told us you know chances are it could leak so it was pretty pretty much simultaneous to the okay to the we found out in march was it march yeah that's right it was March. yeah wow man they really put yeah. a lid on that yeah they really did yeah. well and yeah they, they were very tight i mean i can get into that even with the rehearsals with the security and they wouldn't let people take pictures i definitely want to hear about the rehearsals yeah. so yeah. you find out in march that the, the gig's coming and uh maybe yeah. you know maybe your boss told you hey this is what we're doing and it, yeah. it interests me to hear that people were able to even bow out of it so when it when a particular gig comes up or you're going to do a series or something it's possible for people to say oh i can't do it well it, well if, no uh well, in this in the orchestra, you can either uh, like if there's a week that either you don't want to play or you have some other conflict, you can take the week off. Okay, but that's a little bit different than the Metallica show. The Metallica was uh, an extra set of services on top of our normal services, so actually it was a very very busy week because we had all of that extra stuff on top of our normal schedule. Wow. Okay. So that was like I said, you know, some people it was just going to work for their their either their schedule or I should even add their. Um, you know, just physical ability to sit behind the instrument. You know, it, it can be depending on people's age and their condition and or if they've been nursing injuries or whatever, you know, you have to be careful. So there's an, right. a whole number of reasons why they uh, might not want to want it to play. Um, so it was a very grueling week, but inspiring. On that note, uh, speaking of someone's age, maybe they've been in the symphony for a long time. Uh, like, What's an average length show that you would normally do during the week? Uh, the concerts are typically around, I would say, a little over two hours, including the intermission. So, yeah. Not much different than the Metallica show, I guess. That's right. I'm curious what the split was, in your opinion, Scott, on people who were familiar with the band and excited about the project versus people who were either familiar with the band and not excited about it or just didn't really know what it was and were generally neutral or bummed about it. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I can't honestly say that I, there was anybody I talked to that was uh, bummed and, okay. and were like, oh, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I honestly, there is not a single person I can think of that had that wow. reaction. Um, I, I would say everybody I talked to was so excited about it. I mean, when, yeah. you, when you found out the news, we're, we're, I mean, we, we all love S&M 1, mm -hmm. never thought we'd get a second one. And all of a sudden you, you find out, oh, we're going to do this. 
I mean, were you just beside yourself at that point? Oh yeah. I was like, man, I missed the first one. Now we're going to do this one. And then when it sold out so fast and so many fans were upset, Mm -hmm. uh, and then we we were still out on the road when all that happened. And and then, so I'm around the management and the conductors and all that, and I'm hearing them talking and I overheard them talking about adding a second show. Uh, and I was like, what? And so then I went over and asked this and they said, well, yeah, because there's just so much demand and people, you know, Metallica was really upset that it's just the way it worked out and they really wanted their fans to be happy. And so, uh, they decided to add this, uh, second show and of course we were all thrilled about it wow definitely uh, want to talk about that too because the second show as you probably know scott was fan pretty much the fifth member fan club only yeah. yep so yep. i'm interested yeah, to they hear did that, they did that intentionally yep yeah uh, so that to to help keep the bots out from from uh you know pushing out the the diehard fans that maybe yeah. don't have ten thousand dollars to drop on uh <laughs> drop on tickets yeah so you find out in march and what is it like for you so you're a fan anyway and obviously an astute cat musically but what's it like for you guys when a gig like that comes down the pike are you given sheet music from the first one who's coming up with the compositions for the additional oh, songs what is yeah, all the behind the scenes of getting a show like this off the ground look like well, I can only scratch at the surface of what I can only imagine what the behind the scenes stuff is because it's so complicated, everything right. from logistics to lawyers. But, uh, uh, the, um, as far as our part, um, we didn't see, actually see, well, since I'm the principal, I saw the music a few days earlier just because I had to put Boeings in all the new stuff. So what I mean by Boeings is, so we don't look, you know, you know it doesn't look ridiculous. It looks sort of uniform, but also has a uniformity and sound. Um, I make determinations of what direction our bows are going. Oh, wow. So I have to, and I have to write that in all the parts in my section. And, uh, or I write it in my part and the librarians transfer it. And, um, um, and so I, I did that to the new stuff and then, but I didn't even get to see the old stuff. In fact, some of the stuff was so hot off the presses. I didn't even get a chance to do that. Oh, wow. um, so most of the music we didn't get until the first rehearsal. Really? And so we're sight reading it. When yeah, was that? At the first rehearsal. And that was the, um, it was just over a week before, no, it was uh, the, the Saturday of Labor Day weekend. So it was, uh, yeah, a week before the first show. Whoa. Crazy. That was the first rehearsal. Yeah, that was, and that was without the, that was without the band. But I had, uh, uh, this is kind of a cool story. I had my own rehearsal a couple days before that. Um, and so I'm going to, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll jump back a little bit. I had proposed the idea to them. And they said, preliminarily, it sounds good, but we'll get back to you. And, you know, then time goes by. I don't hear anything. And as I mentioned before, I'm proceeding as if is it as if it's going to happen. But so you're putting the pedal board together. You're getting the bass together. Yep. Oh, yeah. I'm spent. I spent thousands of dollars on equipment. Whoa. At that point, you know, with no guarantee it was even going to happen. <laughs> so and was it a thing where, where uh, you, you keep talking about that you came up with the idea? Was it yeah. even uh presented to you like we want to pay tribute to cliff or was this something on your own that you suggested oh i suggested it okay so this wasn't initially part of the plan of the show oh no not at all no i was uh, i was the one that that suggested the i idea. think the vibe was wow everyone was brainstorming about a way to do something and i guess it what was what sounds kind of cool about that scott is that they treated everyone with respect and said hey everyone's every idea is available right yeah. like anyone has an idea is that the case yeah did anyone have any ideas that didn't get used? Yeah, there was. So I, I don't know how many people 
they spoke to to ask for ideas it wasn't like the whole orchestra got together and it was that is like the music director approached me so he may have just you know selected certain people to talk to um so i i don't know the answer to that uh but um i do know that there was another one that was slated to be uh on it and then uh he ultimately decided not to do it, it as one of the percussionists was going to do something yeah um and he just decided that he, he didn't think that the it wasn't that Metallica or anybody caught him. It was that he just decided that he didn't think it was going to. Do you know what it was? Right. Uh, it was. I don't know exactly. He he said it was some mallet thing. I don't even remember what the um, mallet meaning. Uh, like like vibraphone or or marimba or some percussion instrument. Um, Timpani. Uh, no, it, it would have been one of the uh, sort of. Uh, uh, or melodic. Either by, yeah, yeah, melodic. Yeah. A xylophone. I thought a, a timpani tribute to Metallica would have been so good. Timpani tribute to Cliff. That could that could have worked, yeah. Uh, the uh, no, I think it was um, it was some sort of mallet feature, either vibraphone or marimba. I think he said it. No, I take it back. It was so he said it was a marimba like, intro to something, and he just decided after toying around with it that it just wasn't going to work. If you had known that the part of the process of you being approved to do it meant you going to HQ and playing it in front of the band and like twenty of their management and their inner team, would that have discouraged you from from proceeding? Oh no! I assume that that would. I mean, th- that that would happen. Right. Uh, if I was in their shoes, I would want to hear it before it, you know, gets put on the program. Right. Yeah. Um, they have a they have a certain standard they have to maintain, and 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 uh, and a certain sort of product image, as it were, uh, and and voice to their their group. And so yeah. I I wouldn't I wouldn't want. Um, I, no, I would never expect that they would just put it on i would i would do the same thing if i was in you're putting it all together you're you're proceeding as if it's going to happen because you have to and you sound like a very fastidious prepared person and then you finally do get the call hey it is happening they Mm -hmm. want to hear it and and it's almost like another audition right wow yeah so it was actually it was like i think it was like mid-july uh when the conductor edwin outwater texted me he said yeah i just spoke with with the band uh, they love the idea, but they want to hear it. Make sure you're around uh, last week of August. And I had this actually. So you mentioned that I, you know, the instrument that was being restored on that you saw on Instagram. I was supposed to go pick up that instrument uh, last week of August, oh, wow. but then I moved the, moved the trip into September because um, I. I, I didn't know when exactly they were going to want me to be there. And I wasn't going to be like, sorry, I can't make it because I'm on the East coast. You know, I wanted to make sure I was available. So, um, so I kind of cleared my schedule for the that week leading up or those few days leading up to the first rehearsal. And so then I, then that week I finally, it was like the, I think it was like the day before he said, yeah, they, uh, all right, they want you to HQ tomorrow at three o'clock. Can you make that? Wow. And I said, yes, I can do that. So then, uh, and I live pretty close to where their headquarters is. I, I live in a town called Mill Valley, which is a couple, few exits away from San Rafael, where yeah. their uh, HQ is. And um, uh, so I drove up there and walked in, and um, uh, they were they were expecting me, and and uh, and so they led me back into the um, sort of the main tracking room. Yeah, the tracking room. Thank you. And, You're uh, welcome, Scott. And the, I'm here for you, Scott. The room where yeah. Rob, Rob Trujillo got the job. What was the What was the vibe, by the way? Like you walking in. I mean, there's always that kind of awkward beginning. Did it Did it feel welcoming? Well, so, did it feel okay? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I I've met Lars before. He because he lives here and he comes to concerts occasionally. And I've chatted with him and 
Uh, we even t- talked about at one point there was a possibility I might even give a couple bass lessons to his son. And, oh, cool. Um, awesome. So, so I, I had some interactions with Lars. So he was very welcoming when he said, he's like, hey, man, he recognized me immediately. And, and then uh, introduced me to uh, Rob and to Kirk. And it's funny, Kirk was sitting there on the couch practicing away and he kind of looked up at me and he's like, so uh, who are you? What do you do? <laughs> that was that was before Lars had introduced me to him, but yeah. it was so funny. It's like, you know, who's this guy walking in here? He's like, you're like, I'm gonna blow your mind in about five minutes. No. <laughs> well, Scott, were you walking in like with your gear and shit? Like, were you? Uh, well, we had loaded it into their sort of uh, dining area, and uh, it was just kind of sitting there. But then I walked in just with my bows uh, slung around my shoulder, and and um much like antonio banderas and desperado i imagine yeah something like that yeah, i'm glad they didn't think it was some sort of you know offensive weapon or something but <laughs> was like zach there uh, the t- rob's tech to sort of set it all up and um yep uh and chad they were both uh uh they but they were actually over in the rehearsal room at that point they i didn't meet them yet but so i walked in and, and uh he introduced me and he said they were right in the middle of something and um and he said you know well we'll get to your thing maybe can you stick around for you know another 30 minutes or they were so, playing we uno i believe yes yes <laughs> was probably Actually, tetris, game. i think it was, oh, tetris. it was tetris right on they were yeah. gathered around a and, game boy yeah yes yes <laughs> um and they uh uh so i said sure you know i wasn't going to be like no i'm sorry i'm gonna leave no obviously not i just said sure you know and i was just happy to just sit there and watch them work and uh you know as they planned how to get in and out of different songs on the set list and it was just uh and really fun listening to them discuss this and watch how they work and realize what an incredible operation this whole thing is and how many people are involved. That's why it really started to hit me the scale of this whole right, thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then they said, all right, well, can you go get your stuff set up? So they brought me into the rehearsal room and that's where I met some of the guitar tech guys were all super nice. Um, and they put me right about where James normally stands when they rehearse and, and, um, and the, yeah, and like, all these people I didn't even know who a lot of them were just started to line up around me and once I was all plugged in and ready to go that's when Lars said uh, alright let's hear it no pressure <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> with a toothpick hanging out of his mouth and uh, after your long ass audition process for the San Francisco Symphony this was probably like I mean not easy but just like yeah you've been in high pressure way situations less pressure, before yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've been in plenty of high pressure situations before and it's interesting I actually didn't feel that nervous uh um, and they even had cameras going too. Like they always have cameras going for their, you know, archival footage and right, yeah. behind the scenes things and whatnot. And so they, all that is on film, the whole interaction. Hello, my babies. Clint Wells here. At this point in our phone conversation with Scott, we had some technical difficulties with the quality of the phone call. Uh, entirely on our end, I blame the concrete construction of HQ1. We got it together. We got on Wi-Fi. And from here on out, it's smooth sailing as far as quality goes. Just wanted to give you a quick update. And now back to our wonderful conversation with Scott Pingle. So I left out a, a, an important part. So originally, when after I proposed the idea, then they had some ideas of their own, and they thought that perhaps Rob and I could like trade off, uh, you know, that we would both play hmm. and interact, and you know, and, and trade riffs and stuff. And, and uh, uh, but then after hearing me play it, Rob was like, "I think we should just let this ride." 
Hmm. She's like, I don't think I need to, to, to be involved with this. He says, I think this yeah. is great the way it is. So it was very magnanimous of him. He's just an angel. I just, I just love him. He's a fantastic guy. At any point, I, I'd imagine you were like, God, what a cool thing would have been to compose something together. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, of course that, that thought crossed my mind. And, uh, but then there was another component of it too. I was, that was a, that was a little bit nervous because it's like, well, you know, what if I don't, I can't keep up with them and, and I'm, you know, don't do them justice. Or something. So, oh, you know, there was a little bit of that too, but, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure uh, because Rob is a deep cat musically and I'm sure you yeah. guys, oh, totally. I'm sure you guys have totally. talked about both of your mutual love for Jaco Pastorius who robbed, you know, oh, yeah. pr- produced a documentary about, Oh yeah. We, we, we almost closed, closed a, uh, a bar together a few nights after that, there uh, you go. talking about Jocko. Oh, and awesome. you don't know much about our history, Scott, but, um, we are huge Rob Trujillo fans oh, yeah. over here awesome especially Good for reason. What, he, what he's had to come into in that band and we love jason newstead and of course cliff left such a huge mark on the band but we're such big yep. fans of rob absolutely he absolutely made the right call because i've seen this performance scott and it, it truly is breathtaking not to kiss your butt anymore Thank you. <laughs> and uh and i'm sure rob saw it and thought the way this has to go down the, the best way to pay tribute yeah. to cliff because we i don't know if you've seen the footage or if you've seen any of the shows the last uh, couple of years of touring scott but Rob does an awesome anesthesia tribute during the gigs and it's cool. It's pretty faithful and you Mm -hmm. can see effects, right? And they play this great like video montage of Cliff live on the green in 85. Yeah, I saw one of those. So for Rob to be able to say like, dude, this is, this should be its own thing here. I think is really cool of him, man. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Did he just say it into the open room like that? Or was that kind of a conversation later? No, he said it to the whole room, like yeah. with the producer and everybody's yeah. talking there. Cause, cause Greg Fiddleman was saying, you know, so could we open this section up and like, how could this work with the two of you? And like, we talked about maybe having you guys exchange, you know, back and forth and, and, uh, and Rob was like, you know what? I don't, I don't think we need to do that. And I don't think we should do that. Did anything change from what you composed and wrote in your, in your home studio to what you played for them to what got played on SNM too? Only a little bit more. It's probably uh, aspects of timing and a few little like minor aspects to some of the licks and things. But um, a lot of what I wrote, especially in that whole intro leading up into his solo, was very intentional. Yeah. Um, and so maybe this is the right time to get into that. But uh, so what I wrote at the beginning, if when you listen to Cliff play Anesthesia, there's in almost every version he plays this lick um, that really signals to Lars at the end of the solos coming and then they go out and um and I was I was like where does that lick come from what does that thing mean and I would just kept thinking about it thinking about it and I because I wanted to try and to do some sort of intro into getting into the solo to sort of so that the audience didn't really know what was coming and and when I was trying to come up with material initially um, actually, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. I kept hearing Bach, and I mentioned that to Kirk, and he's like, "Man, Cliff was so into Bach," and I was like, "I knew it." Perfect. Just from listening to his playing, I just kept hearing Bach as I was trying to conceive of some sort of an intro. So I wrote these more contrapuntal kind of Bachian things, um, but then I was listening to it again, and I and I was thinking about that lick that he played at the end of the solo almost every time. And, and I started toying around with that. And if you listen to what I play, it's actually, uh, uh, I play it very slowly. 
when I sort of, I start out with this low fifths, like, and then, and then these little half steps in the upper voice. And it's like, it's mm-hmm. kind of reaching towards something and it's meant to be kind of ethereal, something emerging. Yep. And then it kind of bursts up and then you hear, I, I play almost exactly that lick hmm. that he plays, but I play it very slowly. Yeah. And, uh, but I play in a very somber sort of lamenting, uh, way It's sort of, a, it's mournful. And, and then I expand on sort of one of the motives inside the lick and then wind, then it winds itself down into just a solitary note that then goes into that, uh, arpeggio figure that he did often yeah. as an intro to, um, anesthesia and so and then at that point in the solo what i kind of envisioned was like cliff kind of he's kind of started to emerge back and he's trying to call to his buddies like hey guys you remember and his fans you know like remember when i used to play this 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 lick Hmm. and that's why i did that without fuzz i did that with the harmonizer because you wanted to be clear i wanted to be clear but i also wanted to have a sort of almost unreal quality to it Mm -hmm. this ethereal quality and like it was it wasn't fully in focus yet. And so that's, that's what that moment was, is just sort of him like calling him out. And then I get a little faster. And to me, it's like what I felt in that moment is him just like, really, I miss you guys. And this is what I'm doing. And all right, that's what I miss doing. And then, uh, and then I sort of, then I wrote these, this series of chords and stuff that were intended to be, um, kind of an expression of frustration. Yeah. And, and I play these chords that kind of work my way down in the lower part of the, the instrument and um, and then I settle on this C tri or C triad between uh, or not triad uh, uh, C third between C and E, which has a direct relationship to can be very easily transferred into A minor. And 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 Cliff was doing that in his solos. He would play with uh, for uh, like the one chord and the four chords, which would be an E minor. It would be the E minor chord and the A minor chord. Mm-hmm. And uh, so at that moment, then I that's when I drop into a minor and then I click on the fuzz at that moment. And, uh, and that to me, that's sort of where Cliff sort of bursts through. I see in that moment in the performance, Scott, yeah. Uh, which, by the way, we're kind of like Ethan and I are like sharing choked up looks here across from <laughs> no, each this other. Is, this is, wow. Well, yeah, what you've put into this emotionally is, is is amazing. What I'm hearing from you that I think is so interesting that I'd like for you to speak to, if you can, is yeah. a criticism of orchestral music can tend to be that it's it lacks emotion. Or I'm, I mean, I'm sure this you've heard this a million times, but if people have written this music and then uh, per, it's perfunctory and people play it and you read it off a sheet of paper, but I've seen this performance of yours. And when you go into that section, you kind of have your head back yeah, in, in, in sort of a euphoric, uh, state. And, oh. in, and even if you didn't do that expressively in the performance, everything you're describing about the note choices, yes. uh, things reaching for something, reminding the band, Hey, I miss you guys. I miss my fans. It sort of, it puts quite an, uh, a wrench in the argument that it's emotionless because, mm-hmm. It's quite a bit of an emotional ride you're taking us on, just describing how you put this piece together. Oh yeah, I mean, in fact, when I was working on it at one point, I actually, I, when I was that, and when I was working on that moment, um, I actually teared up when I was playing it, and um, at my house, and uh, and then when I, because I was also trying to figure out exactly when I was going to turn the effects on, right. and when I came up with that idea of getting to the bottom, and then when I hit that that a e sort of power chord mm-hmm. uh and i've realized that's when i have to turn the fuzz on and, and when i heard it i 
set my instrument down and I like ran down the hall and my family are in the living room and I'm like, I figured it out. This is when I'm going to turn it on. This is going to be, you know, this is going to be just the right spot. I was so, cause I felt like I found the truth of what right, I was looking yeah. for, you know, in that moment. And they're like, dad, we're watching the Simpsons. You're such a nerd. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, we're so happy for you. Good job, daddy. You know, so, um, How long did it take you to compose that? You know, uh, parts of it came very fast. Other parts of it, you know, I had to wrestle with things to try and find exactly what I thought was going to be right and what, what I was looking for. Were you recording it and then sort of listening back or was this all done in your mind or it was mostly done in my mind? There was one time I did, I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking too much. I'm going to just turn on the recorder and I'm going to just, uh, just improvise. Yeah. And, and that's actually where the very first bit where I play, when I'm starting to play with those chords and th- things with this sort of emerging thing, yeah. that's actually where that came out of is I just improvised that. Hmm. And then, and then I, and then I listened back to it and I was like, okay, I like it. Then I refined it a little bit. I changed a couple minor little things, but mainly it says as it was, as it just kind of just came out of me. Um, and so, uh, but then I had to try and figure out when am I going to turn the wah on? Mm-hmm. And, and originally I was just going to turn the wah on when I went into playing uh more the literal version of anesthesia where it goes da dee da dee da dee da wow you know i was yeah i was going to turn it on right where that was but could have also always asked kirk hammett when to turn a wah pedal on because uh, i I could have then when i was toying with it and then i decided to put this sort of fast run to get me from the bottom part into that because i felt like it needed motion and it needed energy and it needed a sort of kind of a this expression of kind of wailing and, uh, and then when I went up to that top high note, I was like, all right, that's when, I, and that was another moment of, of great happiness, you know, because that was like, this, right, this is the exact spot that the wah has to be turned on and it has to be mm-hmm. turned on in a certain way. It has to be turned on when the wah is up in a higher frequency range because I, uh, in the sweep of the wah, cause I wanted that sound of, of that wailing and that yeah. brightness in the sound. And, and that, so that's when it clicks on and, um, and which is all nerve wracking because I'm not that familiar with how to use these things. In fact, I, I, I have to confess, and uh, Alan, who's the owner of Bananas at Large, would confirm this. I said to him, I was like, so how the hell do you turn this thing on? Because it's, how are you supposed to get to that switch when it's like under the pedal? And he looked at me like I was a complete idiot. He's like, you have to push your toe down on Lean it. Lean forward. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I was like... I was like, you've got to be kidding me that I can't believe how foolish I feel right now. I was like, of course that's what you do. But I, I never used one before. So I was like, thought there was something I was missing. <laughs> it's embarrassed to say, but anyway, you're fired from the San Francisco symphony, but yeah, exactly. by the way, Scott, I'm here to tell you, yeah, you've been a, let go. It's over. Um, yeah. you didn't know where to push the button on the thing. <laughs> yes, I know. It's, it's really embarrassing. I probably shouldn't be divulging that, but, uh, but it, no, I don't care if it's, it's just funny. So the audition at HQ, or I call it an audition, but you played it for the band. You get the seal of approval, of course, from Kirk saying Cliff would have loved it. Rob Trujillo saying it should just be you. I mean, that must have felt great and reaffirming about what you composed. But also, when did you get to play it for James? And did that sort of feel like another gauntlet? Was that a different deal? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so James didn't get to hear it until we had... uh so that was on a, on Thursday, and then we had a full orchestra without the band on the set following Saturday, and then that night we went down to this place called the Cow Palace, which is another large uh, like arena, mm-hmm. yeah. and um, and because the Chase Center was not available, so they had to set the whole stage up with all of the jumbotron and everything, and a lot some of the lighting that was all they had to preset it down there. 
so that we could, you know, they, everybody could do their practice. So, you know, for not just the musicians, but also, you know, the lighting engineers and all, you know, everybody and the sound engineers, there was a lot that had to be done um, because we didn't get to get into the chase center until uh, a few hours before the first performance. So um, anyway, but going back um, so that, Saturday night, I didn't get to play the solo, and then we had that Sunday off, and then Labor Day, we had two rehearsals, and uh, the first rehearsal, we didn't get to it, and then the second rehearsal, the night rehearsal, we did, and uh, and so for uh, those rehearsals, James was there for those, and so that's when he heard it for the first time, and uh, and he came over, and he was really happy with it and wow. and thank and thanked me wow and uh and that was uh that was really really nice and you know he's he's kind of the the quiet wise man uh in some ways of of the band you know he's just he's more reclusive from what i can tell and he's very nice very very yeah. nice man uh but very he seems like he's uh yeah they all have their own uh personalities but yeah, he their just, own energy, was, yeah. Sure. yeah definitely definitely and all just wonderful people and um but it, it was also you know, James is such a presence, you know, if, if you've ever been around him, he's very tall and big and just like he walks in and it's just like, you can't miss him. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. And, sure. uh, and so, yeah, he commands a certain presence. And so it was, uh, it was also, you know, there, it was, everybody was very meaningful and very important to me. And, and he was sort of the last piece of the puzzle at that point. Man, that's so cool. What did your colleagues think about the piece when they were hearing it in the rehearsals? Oh, well, that was another thing that James said to me. So they hadn't heard it until the same time James did. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh wow! Because because so at this point the only people who'd heard it were your wife and your daughters, and then yep. the HQ and company. That's right. Wow. Yeah. Okay, but they knew yeah. you were doing it though, right? A lot, a lot of people didn't know it until like the day of, because uh, uh, Edwin you was, said you guys were friends. <laughs> yeah. Well, I kept it quiet in part because I didn't know it was going to happen. Right. I wasn't totally sure, and then also, um, you know, the band. Later, I found out they were very happy. I kept it quiet because they wanted it to be a surprise to the fans. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I just my instinct was just not to say anything, and for whatever reason, and uh, I didn't even think about it that much. I just decided to just keep it to myself. I mean, that was a good call, man. I mean, as far as all of us fans knew, you know, the, when the band made the announcement about the shows, it was like we're going to do Michael Kamen's arrangements and stuff that came out after that. Yeah, some new, st yeah. some new stuff. Right, some new stuff. So, as far as we knew, nothing you know, before reload was happening. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah. like, you know, I, I was on vacation in Europe and I look at the set list and all of a sudden I see anesthesia and I'm like, what the hell is this? And it wasn't Rob Trujillo. And I was like, What's, right. what is this? Dude, Scott, the, the, your moment with anesthesia is probably the biggest takeaway of SNM too. Hands down. Cause, wow. if, cause otherwise it would just be that they played day that never comes and all within my hands, right? And James yeah. did Unforgiven Three, and he just sang it to the an yeah. orchestral accompaniment, the hardwired stuff, and, and a couple yeah. of hardwired tunes. But this is probably the moment of S and M too. Mm -hmm. Wow! And well, you're going to be all over the DVD and the album. I mean, there's so many other things to talk about. Okay, so James hears it. James <laughs> likes it. I'm sorry. I'm just trying to. I don't want to take too much of Scott's time. Oh, that's okay. So, so that's on Labor Day. That's on Labor Day. Is that correct? Yeah, that's on Labor Day. Yep. yep. All right. So so what happens after Labor Day? So then, uh, then we don't see the, uh, each other. Uh, so then we, the symphony has to go back to our regular regimen of rehearsals and concerts. And then, so we don't see Metallica again until, until, um, what time was rehearsal? It was, a few, it was like four hours before the first. When were you guys rehearsing the Metallica material, not just your piece, but 
all of it, all of the arrangements. So that was, uh, that was that Saturday morning rehearsal before Labor Day. That was full orchestra without the band. And then that night we went down to the Cow Palace and then that was when we ran through things with the band. Um, and then we had those two rehearsals on Labor Day all with the band. And were there moments where you're stopping and saying, this isn't working, let's change this? Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So totally. a lot of rewriting and reconfiguring wow. how to make it better. Uh, a little bit of that. Mainly it was transition stuff. I mean, on the inner mechanics of the tunes, uh, everything was, was was great. Because a lot of it had been done before. And Bruce Coughlin, right. who did the arrangements for the new stuff, is a very competent and experienced, uh, he's excellent, you know, one of the leading arrangers. So... Um, all of his charts worked great. And so there just, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a lot of issues with that. It was, you know, getting sound levels, getting used to how to hear each other, work the, you know, sound boards, uh, you know, cause each section had its own monitoring system, which is a whole nother thing. Um, and, uh, just getting used to that in, environment, which is so different from what we normally are playing in. And, uh, but yeah, and just how to get in and out of the different songs and, and how many counts are going to be. And, uh, so a lot of that. Can we, can you tell us a little bit about the monitoring? I'm very curious about that. Yeah. Were you guys on in-ears? Did you have wedges? Were you? Yeah. So that was very complicated. No, there were no wedges. Everything was, was, uh, most of the, well, the orchestra, they were all using over ears. And then I bought a set of in-ears for the show. Did you get your ears molded? I, I, well, I bought ultimate ears and they do the uh, laser scan. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So I did the 3d thing and, um, and I'm wow. so glad I, they sound incredible. And I just, I decided just to get the same ones that the band use these, the UE sevens. Um, but I did, I did test drive the UE lives and those are just like, I, it's just like the greatest thing I've ever heard. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And for people who don't understand this, what happens is, in Scott's case, for Ultimate Ears, they take a laser where they mold your ear. It, yeah. I use West Home where they actually put like foam and shit. It's horrible. Yeah, and, uh, and then you get you get in your monitors that have the UE7s. I'm guessing have seven drivers in them. No, I think it's three. Three drivers. Just, it's just it's just a product number. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. you they perfectly match your ear. They seal your ear, so mm-hmm. you're able to get more clarity at lower volumes. And it's the way most professional people b- right, make live yeah. music. Are you saying you were the one of the only people that got molded in ears? Uh, for the show, yes. And, okay. and then I told Edwin, the conductor, that I got them. And he was like, that's so awesome. I think maybe I should do it too. So then he went and got uh, a pair of the same. <laughs> wow. And, uh, and so, yeah, we, we both did it. And, but, you know, we both had sort of prominent, you know, prominent roles in the show. So right. it, just, it just seemed to be more fitting than to have chunky, like, over-ear headphones on. What are over-ear headphones? Cans. Well, just, just yeah, cans. Oh, yeah. cans. Oh, that's yeah. What, we're wearing, what, what me and Clint are wearing right now. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I just thought it would be... That's like a term just, from the 30s. <laughs> yeah, over right. in-ears. Well, I reckon yes. I'll use them over-ears. Exactly. So each section had their own mix, or how did that work? Yeah. Um, oh, and another component of the in-ears that's so important is their sound isolating, so they reduce the volume that you hear mm-hmm. uh, in general. And so that's, an, that, that's a, one of the big reasons I got them, was to isolate the incredibly high volumes that are in the room. Right. And so the ones that I got, uh, they they have a, a, a filter in it that you can pull out. So, but they normally are, they reduce sound by 26 decibels, or if you pop this little thing out, it's just, it's only reducing by 12 decibels, but it just reduces the impact. It's, it's, it's the, uh, I think they're called the ambient ones or whatever. Ambient. Yeah. yeah. Ambient filter. Yeah, yeah. That's uh that's what it is. And, uh, so that was very, very helpful because it just, it allowed me to be in that environment without high volume. Right. Um, so anyway, but, um, the monitoring system, uh, they had a different 
set of monitors for each section because we had a mixer for each section because you're going to want to hear different things depending on what section of the orchestra you play in. So as the bass players, we wanted to hear a lot of ourselves, naturally, True. a little bit of the orchestra, a fair amount of the band, but a lot of Lars's uh, snare drum and hi-hat and kick mm. drum. Okay. Yeah, you're trying to lock in with the backbeat and the kick. and Exactly, and because we did not have a click. There was no click track. No right, click on yeah. the whole gig, or there just wasn't a click for you? Not for us. I, I think Lars had one. But the gig was on a click? Uh, they normally I don't think, use a click. No. Uh, uh, but for this, they might, though. But sometimes they did for just to get things started. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but, and then also because we recorded it so mm-hmm. that the tempos were consistent, I think Lars may have been on a click. Maybe not all of it, but a fair amount of it, just okay. to make sure that... that but I can't answer that. It, maybe it wasn't the whole show, but I know some aspects of it he was on a click because we did a patch session on that uh, before the Sunday show uh, for the, the audio because they needed to get a clean orchestra track because our instruments are acoustic and we have microphones in front of our instruments. Right. And so we're getting a lot of bleed from the PA system and the band and the crowd noise is all going in through those mics. So you're saying, Scott, that for Greg Fiddleman's purposes... You guys got a full performance of just the orchestra for mixing. Yep. You could you could basically what Scott is saying, if they need to and probably predominantly actually, they're going to be mixing in the clean non yep. non 20,000 right. screaming Metallica fans and non four guys banging on instruments so that they yep. can so that's smart. I didn't even know that. Yeah, that, no, yeah. that's very smart. Yeah, they, I mean wow. they they had to. Yeah, cuz yeah, there's 18,000 fans screaming in there. It was uh, for each show, well, especially it was at night too. too much. Yeah. So how many times did you guys run through that? Because like, basically that had to have been billed as, this is what the producer is probably going to use for the clean audio. Was that yep. just like one time through or multiple times through songs so they had comp comp options or what? Yeah, so yeah. So we had a, for that we had a click and then we had a band track. Um, Where did that come from? Uh, from, I think they pr- recorded our performances. So we had uh, a band track going and then um, just as a reference and then we just played along with it from a previous rehearsal i think so yeah I'm, i or yeah i think yeah, so that I think is that's fascinating so probably from the cow palace yeah maybe i it may or maybe not I, I i don't know the answer where they got the band track from but um snm1 whoa they, it, well it could be actually it could be because wow. some of the some of the charts were the same so yeah. it could be uh but uh but yeah there was that was the only way to be able to get an isolated orchestra sound and then even for me when i did my solo i sent them both a clean and a wet mm-hmm. uh, okay. signal yep because they, because also Big Mick was going to need both for the clarity in the room. Because once you put fuzz, I've learned so much about effects. Yep. <laughs> I, even though I know I'm only scratching the surface, but I've learned so much uh, in the this the last few weeks. You dove straight in the deep end. Of you effects. did. No, no, yeah. the, wet, the wet dry is very important. Yeah. Yeah, and so what I learned is that yeah, bass fu- bass with fuzz in particular gets muddy really fast. So, uh, yeah, so um, that's what Big Mick requested is that I give them both clean and dry. So that in the room, in the room, he could mix them. Did you interface with Big Mick at all? Or? Oh yeah, quite a bit. So actually, getting back uh, my pedal board, the way it was designed, uh, the way we Dan uh, at Bananas at Large and I worked it out. Um, in the end, it didn't quite work in the through the PA system, and so Big Mick made a suggestion. He's like, "Hey, take your compressor pedal. I use the MXR compressor pedal and put it at the front of your chain." Yeah. And he says, "And I think that will give you a." cleaner more active signal going through the rest of the pedals so that's what i did and that made a huge difference because we had a problem with my fuzz pedal was clipping because the bass 
sent a very hot signal into the pedals, first of all. But then the other thing was with the bow and the amplitude and the strings and how much energy was going through the signal, it was just, it was too much for the fuzz pedal. Right. And I, when I would, in fact, when I would hit that low chord that was so important, it was kind of clipping out. Mm-hmm. And then once we put the compressor on that, that just completely eliminated it. And because um, this, the fuzz pedal is made by Ryra, which is not so well known, but it stands for, I guess, Rockier Reconditioned Amp. Um, and this thing just, Man, it's just so fat and thick and dirty and awesome. I just love this pedal. It's What's just... going to happen with the pedal board now? Are you going to start an experimental rock project, or, or are you going to take it take it to the next rehearsal for the symphony? <laughs> oh. uh, maybe, maybe. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll I'll definitely keep toying with it. I mean, I bought numerous fuzz pedals to try yeah. and you know find the right sound and whatnot. And I have another one that I'll be able to use if if I don't have the luxury of sending both the wet and dry. I have another one that will allow me to control that. It's uh, by Aguilar and they have, uh, which I really uh, like the sound of. Aguilar's dope. They make great stuff. Yeah. 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 Another one someone recommended was Dark Glass. I don't know if you guys have much familiarity with yeah, that I'm company with in Finland. Glass, yeah. uh, but um, anyway, but I didn't get a chance. I mean, when, when we were experiencing that clipping and Big Mick, he, he put, he put my mind at ease and he tuned my pedal board and whatnot. And then later, in an email he said you know let's try your compressor at the front and we spent time on the phone this is this is the day actually the morning of or no the, sorry the day before uh the friday performance so thursday i'm on the phone with mick and he's like all right well now and so i had to basically i had to completely undo my pedal board and redo it because <laughs> yeah. i had to move everything around you know and uh which i guess maybe i didn't have to do it that way i could have just used different cables and just rerouted but i just i wanted everything to be in sort of its order for many musicians like you scott and ethan and i and a lot of fastidious uh, pedal nerds there's almost a ritual to getting it laid out correctly. You want your signal yeah. chain to, yeah, to follow it. Totally. It's almost like an OCD thing. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so give us yeah. the day of the show, day one. Yeah. What time are you loading in? What's load in like for you on a day like SNM two? Yeah, so I got there early because I wanted to set up and get in the room and then hopefully even get an opportunity to do a sound check just to hear what it's like in the room. And so um, I think I got there at about one o'clock and the rehearsal was scheduled to be, I think, from three to five or something like that. So so I got there you know, ways before the rest of the orchestra and then and, and Mick had asked me to come early. And so I did that and plugged in, and we got a test run. And, and then Mick came down from the main board and then was just making a few tweaks on the knobs. And, and then we, we got it all dialed in, and uh, we were really happy with it. And Lars was not there for that. It was just me playing at that point. And then we did the rehearsal. Um, and then I did just the – then Lars and I, just to get levels, we just ran through the part where he came, comes in. We just played a little bit of that. And then, uh, um, and then we continued on running the show and then, uh, we had a long break and then the show. Wow. And, uh, I started to, well, so we had dinner, they provided dinner for us backstage and catering, then I kind of yeah. started, yeah, catering. And I started to kind of fall asleep, took a little nap, nap uh, time, <laughs> a little bit of nap time. Yeah. Which is surprising. Cause I, cause you know, I actually, again, I, I, I was very excited, but I wasn't that nervous. And times when I would start to get nervous, um, you know, I would you know, just remind myself to breathe and relax. Yeah. And Were you thinking about the fact that like, so first of all, there's two shows to play in front of two yeah. sets of 18,000 fans or 20,000, yeah. whatever the cap was. Secondly, you're aware they're making a record and a DVD. Yeah. What, what made you more nervous? I mean, like the performance I, side of the f- disappointing fans or, or elating fans or the fact that it's going to live on in posterity in a, in the form of a record. 
Well, you know, that's interesting. Yeah, you could, Sigmund Freud wrote about that. He wrote an article, I believe, called Wrecked by Success and how, like, the fear of success can, can, can destroy people far more than the fear of failure, but, um, which is complicated, I guess. But, uh, I, uh, no, I, um, I try, I didn't really think about any of that stuff. I tried not to, I, I, uh, because it could become a distraction. Well, it was hard to, because you retired, because it was nap time. It was nap time. Yeah. No. <laughs> no, actually, one of my colleagues said to me, he's like, man, I'd be a nervous wreck. I saw you over there and you're like falling asleep. And I was like, yeah, well, I was I was kind of tired and I just kind of was going in the zone and kind of just thinking about the solo and just kind of running through it in my head. And uh, and I just yeah, started to kind of doze off a little bit. But um, that's pretty funny, dude. Yeah, well, I love that's, it. I, well, I, 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 w- I would be lying if I said I was always that way because there's other, been other times where I've been extremely nervous and, and coming on feeling like I'm almost coming unglued. And uh, but but no, that 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 was not really the case there. And I was just really excited to get up there and I was just kind of in the zone and I had done my homework and and uh, was ready to do it. And and um, I was really excited. Actually, I was more nervous for the second show, for the Sunday show. Why? Uh, I think because everybody was telling me about all the attention it was getting. And like, have you seen this comment and what this person wrote and this and that and this review? Right. And, and I was like, you know what? I don't want to know. Well, you have the day off in between. So right. a lot of people had time to process what happened on the first night. Yes. So yeah. everyone's like critiquing the first Which show. Which one was your better performance, Scott? Night one or night two? In your, in um, your, in your opinion. I don't know if there, if there were some things I liked better about each one. You know, I intentionally played it a little slower the second night because I, then I did go finally allow myself to go listen to the first show um, on that the day the next day. Yeah, the adrenaline and, maybe you played a little faster than you thought. Yeah, I was yeah I was really excited and you know and I yeah I played it a little bit faster than I then. It's like the speed metal version. <laughs> yeah, somewhat. It is, yeah, if you listen to both, it is it is a little bit faster when I get to the cliffs. My main main section. Did the producers or Greg or whomever was in charge of this kind of thing? Did anyone yeah. tell you, "Hey, FYI, we got what we needed for the album, so have fun night two? Or did they say, "No, hey, we'd love for night two to be solid, also, so we can we comp them both or whatever? Yeah, no, there were, there was the, no. They were uh, the only thing that was said to me is, "Man, that was awesome. We got one in the can, or it's in the can, or something oh, good. like that." Cool. Yeah, that, and, that uh, means you. That means you killed it the first night. That means you did. A, you did yeah. good, my friend. If it was in yeah. the can, you're you're golden. Yeah. So so then the uh, but then the second night, like I'm warming up and it's like a little it was an hour and a half or so before the show or two hours before the show, and then the guy uh, Corey Groff from the Rolling Stone comes up. To, uh, comes up to me and someone introduced me and he said he wanted to interview me. And, and then he said something about, I'm only the second person Lars has played that solo with since Cliff died and, and, uh, or something to that effect. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> and then it just started. And then, uh, you know, it, that started to kind of weigh on yeah, me a little bit. Sure. And, uh, um, and so I did start to get nervous and then it was about an hour or so before the show. And I was just, I just wanted to find a quiet place to go and, and, and take a nap. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I, should this, I? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I actually just I found a nice quiet corner that was I was a little alone and just kind of pray, yeah. and and uh, and also um, and kind of run through it in my head just very calmly. Sure. And, you are uh, such a sweet dude, Scott. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> Listen to you, man. That well, I mean, so I mean, honestly, dude. I mean, I I'm really uh, you know I, I'm very appreciative of of your 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 care into this performance yeah, a lot of TLC. This composition a lot of TLC. um it's not ju- it's not just like you're getting on stage with with the the electric double bass and playing the solo verbatim 
you know, you're adding all these things to it. Like it almost, in my opinion, what you added to it are transitions between Cliff's parts. Yeah. You know, it's like you have an intro, then all of a sudden the intro is into Cliff's first recognizable part. Boo, 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 boo. Right. Yeah. Then it goes out of that into something else. And it's, it's these beautiful notes you're playing into the next part. It's, it's, it's such a great piece, man. You really, really did a great job. Well, cause it could have oh, easily, yeah, dude, Scott, for real, Ethan means it. I know this guy. He's a very sincere, <laughs> nice, nice person. Oh, I mean it. It could have easily have been like, oh, well, the band's looking for ideas. I'm a world-class bass player. I'll do something cool. Right. Uh, it's t- And by the way, none of us knew any of all this before thought stuff until, Scott, you've talked to Ultimate Classic Rock and Rolling Stone maybe, and now us. It's like, hearing all the TLC is like, oh, it's just so nice to oh, know that cool, yeah. it was in the hands of someone who cared so much. Oh, well, I, I, I cared a lot about it. And, and uh, you know, Cliff was a beloved human being just like anybody and and uh, but you know he also touched a lot of people and mm-hmm. and um and i uh, just i wanted it like i said before i wanted it to be meaningful from for everybody that knew him and loved him and that includes me were so, you able to talk to ray or casey after the performances yeah so uh after the friday show uh there was a um reception in in san francisco at this club and so i got to meet ray there and i spent most of the night with Ray. Mm, wow. And we just had so much to talk about. And I, with, especially with my jazz background and he, he is his favorite thing in the world is big bands. Yeah. And so we talked a lot about that because I actually did play with some big bands, uh, in my younger years. Uh, when I, I played with an, with an orchestra called the, or not or well, they called it an orchestra, the, the Dick Jurgens jazz orchestra <laughs> and, and nobody's ever heard of it, but he did. He knew exactly who I was talking about. Wow. I was like, I was just so amazed. They were like a popular band in the 1920s and thirties in the Midwest. And he knew, he knew exactly who they were. Ray's a sharp cat. Ray's oh, he is yeah. a wealth of knowledge and just as sharp as a, as a razor, man. He's wow. just awesome. And, and, um, and then I played with the Tommy Dorsey ghost band and, you know, I, I did a bunch and he was just so excited about that. And, and, uh, yeah, we, we really hit it off. It was wonderful. And Casey was there, but she just kind of, she kind of let us go and do our thing. And, and, uh, and then like, I think, I think Ray outlasted me. I had to go to bed and then, <laughs> you know, cause I had to get up for rehearsal and Ray's like still going. And, and then I got to see him again Sunday. There was this like this, uh, private event. Uh, after the show at the chase center and Ray was there and we chatted more and, and, uh, and we, uh, it was just, that was really beautiful, uh, getting to hear from him and Casey. And they, they said that they, you know, they loved it both nights, but they, it was even more sort of emotionally powerful for them the second night. Cause the first night it was just, you know, this pure excitement and, yeah. and, and the novelty of it all, cause they hadn't heard it. And then the second night they were able to sink into it a little bit more and, sure and said that it brought him to tears and that just brought me to tears and wow. it was just really really sweet and um and then i went to lars's house and i i think i left lars's house at a little after four in the morning <laughs> All right. so, yeah it was a fun <laughs> night and then i had to get up and i had to i had to go to the dentist you know i had been waited six months for this <laughs> dentist appointment i'm not kidding i had a 9 30 dentist appointment i couldn't miss 9 30 uh, the next day yeah wow I think it's pretty safe to say that you are now, whether you like it or not, a part of the Metallica family. Yeah, you are, man. Oh, well, I, that's a huge honor for me, and I, I, I love it. And I, uh, these, they're, they're just fantastic. They're really great guys, and I, I hope that I can spend more time with them in the future. I know certainly at least Rob and I will, and even actually Kirk and Rob and I even talked about 
we were talking about the the listening sessions that that uh, Kirk used to do with uh, with Cliff, and we talked about maybe bringing that back because they said you know the, he, Cliff knew so much about classical music because his dad made sure he did, and uh, and Cliff loved it too. And they were like, we want to learn more about it. These guys are curious and they're inquisitive, sure, so yeah, they were like, can we can we get together and do? So I hope that you know we'll. It'll very likely happen, and I think that would be a lot of fun. It is a beautiful full circle aspect of all this that Cliff brought that to the table in Metallica Mm -hmm. at such an early age, and then he was taken away from us, obviously so young. But it's almost like a lot of the seeds he planted at that level of musical depth has is kind of what's made Metallica enduringly interesting all these years later. Agreed. And set them apart from all their peers. It really comes from the harmonic... um, influence of Cliff, and right. that's because yeah. Cliff and the form and the forms and the yeah, music right. too, right? Yeah, and I love that you saying, Scott, that like you were hearing Bach and you didn't even know that Cliff knew Bach. Like, yeah, the thread is there, dude. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's so cool. All right, well, we don't want to take up too much more of your time. We have some questions from patrons, if that's okay with sure. you, Scott. Yeah, sure, no problem. And then I, I want to talk to you personally for another six or seven or eight hours, if that's cool. <laughs> yeah, once we're Anytime, man. Yeah. Give me a call. <laughs> so Chris here just asks, other than your solo, were there any moments during the show that were highlights for you both musically and from a crowd energy perspective? That's a good question. Can you run that by me one more time? Sorry. So other than your solo, which I imagine, like even when you're playing all the other songs, like you're thinking about like that moment's coming. But he's saying other than that moment, your big moment, were there any other moments in the show that were highlights for you? Whether it was musically stuff you were playing that you loved or a Metallica song that you loved, or maybe like the crowd's response to something. Oh, I think there are aspects of all of the above. Uh, But it's musically speaking, um, you know, playing a lot of the classics that I listened to, like when I was uh, younger that, that I grew up with, like one mm-hmm. um, in particular, because that was when Ju- and Justice for All came out, that was like my first Metallica album. And then I kind of went backwards wow. from there once I, because that was the first album. I, so, and that tune in particular. I I just I loved it, and so that was just just I love it, and also just the nostalgic aspect wow. of it was really nice for me. Uh, Call of Cthulhu yeah. is just beautiful awesome. piece, beautiful oh, piece, beautiful, and it's so it's just and it, that is a very symphonic. Piece. Yeah, it's a yes. deep. That's a deep song for sure. Very, very, uh, and I, I wish I kind of wish that they would have done uh, an orchestral arrangement of Orion. Yeah, me we do too. too. We do too. I know. Yeah. Uh, so maybe SNM three do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Hey, well, you heard it here yeah. first, folks. Rolling yeah, Stone. Yeah, yeah. I'll push yeah, for it. I'll Scott's see in. what I can do. <laughs> was there any? Were there any moments of crowd response? I mean, I know you had those like tight in ears in, but were there any crowd moments where you were like, "Holy shit, I wasn't expecting that." Even with my in ears, I can hear the crowd, and and occasionally I would pull them out just to hear the full force of the crowd. And yeah, it's wild being at the sort of at the center of that like it's all aimed at you all that sound and that energy right. and it was just it was amazing the fans were just incredible and they're so dedicated and and uh i um you know also that there was no barricade you know there, there was like we were had this connection with the audience there yeah. wasn't like the, this offense between us and, and them and we're walking out amongst the fans and so it just felt more collaborative That's because cool. you know frankly as a musician you know, it's important to have your, uh, you know, you think about a lot about what it is you're doing, but that's only half the equation. You need the other half. You need someone to receive mm-hmm. it. And it's, it's, it's reciprocal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a symbiotic relationship. Absolutely. And so you're giving to them and they're giving back. And it's yep. a beautiful thing. That's so cool. 
More wisdom from Tony Scott Pingle Robbins. <laughs> uh, Chris has one more question that is, did other members of the symphony or even just you understand how big and how important this gig was in the Metallica world? Um, we kind of touch w- on that a little bit, but I think, yeah. I think you knew, obviously. Yeah, I, I had an idea that it was going to be a big deal. And also that, that kind of helped in some aspects uh, drive that drive what I was doing. I mean, I wanted it to be good for it, its own sake and it being good, but also uh, recognizing, you know, how big of a project this was. Right. And so, um, you know, for, for me to have that exposure and have that opportunity to, um, as I said, try to do something like the solo, I, I, uh, I took it very seriously for all those reasons. Yeah, man, for sure. Well, and, and speaking of that solo, the next question ties into that. Um, one of the patrons, Nicole Williams, asks, uh, could you feel the love from the crowd while you were playing the solo? Was it evident um, how much this meant to the fans and the band? And she also says, I personally was covered in goosebumps. Awesome. Uh, I did my job. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> um, you did. Yeah, you definitely yeah. did, yeah. <laughs> uh, the... Um, so when I first, started, you know, when James introduced that I was coming up and, you know, and of course, then he mentioned a tribute to their fallen brother, Cliff Burton, you know, people got excited and then, uh, you know, I, and I bring the thing up there and I set it up and, and I start playing, you know, and people are whooping and cheering, but they, you know, they don't quite know what to expect. And, right. um, when I, it really was really cool was when I first started playing that first really recognizable Cliff lick and the, and I heard the audience respond to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, uh, that when I felt that I felt a much more intimate connection with the audience, but honestly it was weird. I was aware of them, but I wasn't necessarily preoccupied with them. I was really focused on what I was doing, but it was like, I was also aware of them at the same time. And it was really cool. Yeah. You said you should be, which is, I almost said you can't be like, you almost can't be self-conscious about that when you're doing yeah. the work you're supposed to be well, doing. Well, I mean, yeah. When, yeah. We, like when you just said, when you're doing the work you're supposed to be doing, the crowd reaction is almost like, it's like the bonus. Yes, like you're, exactly. You're, you're immersed in what you're doing and all of a sudden this <clears throat> this reaction from a crowd starts to overtake, not overtake, but it starts to well, kind of... supplements, yeah. Yeah, it supplements what you're doing and all of a sudden yeah. it's... And then they the two kind of blend together and, and you can work with that and it almost fuels, you know, what you're doing. Absolutely, um, and I watching your performances on YouTube. I mean, I, I definitely felt that. I yeah. well, I agree with everything you said, Ethan. Well, well said. <laughs> Thank you. Well said, Perfect. everybody. Uh, so I have Jesse House wanted to just make a statement, and then I have another question from Greg. So Jesse says, "No questions for me, but you can let Scott know that I wept both nights during anesthesia. That has never happened to me during a concert before. It was incredible." Wow. wow. And I'm telling you, Scott, wow. th- this is this is not an anomaly in crowd reaction to your performance. It was a moving wow. piece, dude. Yeah, man. Thank you. Uh, well, it's giving me goosebumps just hearing that, so that's <laughs> yeah. really sweet. One guy wrote an email to us, and I think we read it last week, but he said, I cried during it, and don't tell my wife because she's still mad that I didn't even cry at our wedding. <laughs> oh, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Yep. <laughs> wow. Greg Staso wow. asks, he says, and you touch on this a little bit, but maybe we can camp out for a minute. Uh, he says, if you studied Cliff's playing and song structure writing, and what's your opinion of it? It sounds like you have studied it and you think it's awesome, but is there any particular takeaway from diving in deep and as a as a world-class musician yourself, what you can take away from Cliff that t- was taken away at such a young age, but was obviously 
almost like the Jimi Hendrix of bass for his time right, yeah. and his age. Yeah, certainly, yeah. Well, I mean, even just, I, like I was saying before, I, I could hear the classical influence so much in his playing, not only in his note choices and shaping of sort of motives or small little snippets of music that are sort of the building blocks of music of pieces. Um, but also his sense of form and structure, like always with his anesthesia, there's like this sort of, uh, there's this intro and then there's, uh, motion and there's a complicated time signatures in it too i mean he's it's not just straight ahead uh, i mean like sometimes there's uh, all these odd meter bars that go in there and it's it's uh, it's really inventive and very clever um but really it's super cool i mean that's just, yeah. just that's the easiest way to put it um and then he goes into you know these fast sections that ha- that mean another thing and then it takes into this kind of funky rock and roll section that's full of soul and 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 sort of blues riffs and uh it's uh yeah, he's just a fantastic musician. What more can I say? Yeah, Are you able to do that uh, when you want to get into it? Say you're playing like an electric bass, like a more standard rock and roll bass. Are you able to do that kind of fast alternate picking thing that he did, like in Whiplash? Are you like? Do you have the the that dexterity for fingers, that? Though. Oh, he, and, and yeah, and he was doing his fingers. That's right. Ironically, this week at the San Francisco Symphony, I'm actually playing electric bass on one. Uh, piece that oh, wow. uh, the, the composer John Adams, very famous uh, American composer, um, he he wrote this uh, piece for the orchestra, and he wrote a very prominent electric bass part to it. Wow, and cool. and so yeah, I, I do play electric bass occasionally. I still have my modulus six string that I've had since 1991, wow, and and, nice. uh, and I get it out every now and when then. Are you I auditioning some... for the Dave Matthews Band anytime soon? <laughs> oh, is there an opening? <laughs> are you a fan of Dave Matthews Band at all? Oh yeah, totally. What about Tool, Justin Chancellor? Are you into Tool at all? I can't say that I know that band as much. I, 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 it's not like I don't. I'm not interested in those things. It's just I, I'm so preoccupied with so much. It's it's hard for me. Who to, are your favorite bass players yeah. in the rock world, or other than Cliff Burton? If we if you we could ask. Well, uh, of course, uh, I guess if you would want to call it rock, but there's Les Claypool, right? Of course, yes, it's of so, course. so brilliant. Um, also, Barry, a guy. Hmm. Oh, I didn't know he was Barry. That's interesting. Of course, Rob Trujillo, you know, he's yeah. just awesome. I love, I love Jason Newstead as well. Um, you know, I'm going to kind of limit myself a little bit because I don't. I'm, as I said before, I I'm a little out of the loop at this point. I I can maybe name some of the older guys, but what about um, Flea. I, I was going to get to that. Yeah, Flea, of yeah. course, is another you know legend. In fact, I was just talking about Flea with Robert when you guys called. <laughs> we, we were actually talking about him a little bit. Hey, since you um, brought it up, Scott, yeah. I do want to point out to all of you Metal Up Your Podcast family out there, when we called Scott to do this talk, Scott was talking to Robert, and Scott had to get off the phone with Robert to talk to us. <laughs> so take that, Rob Trujillo. Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, conference call in Flea and Robert Trujillo right Next now. Next time everybody. you want to talk to Scott, you make an appointment, motherfucker. That's how yeah. we do things here. All right, we got a few more questions from patrons here. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, next one is from uh, this is not necessarily a question, more of a sentiment, but um, this is from uh, Tom Trinkeller. He says, I was absolutely, absolutely beside myself watching that singing your bass solo. Uh, one of the most emotionally overwhelming things I've ever had the pleasure of experiencing. Not only is this rendition brilliant but the physical performance was phenomenal as someone who identifies with cliff strongly john is a person as well um as he's the reason i started playing bass i just wanted to say thank you i was simultaneously moved to tears and giddily giggling with joy (laughs) he also read your ultimate classic rock interview so he had a little more of a connection to yeah that's cool scott that's awesome man yeah i love it 
Alex Van Dyke says, this is similar, and we've touched on some of this before, too. He says, when you were young, do you remember your first exposure to Metallica and your initial thoughts on hearing Anesthesia for the first time? So you were in a band with your sister, and maybe your siblings are turning on to this. Do you remember some of those first moments? Uh, Yeah, well, I I knew, I actually, before I got in the band with my sister, I played in a, in a garage band with these, some just guys, uh, there was a guy down my street and they were looking for a bass player. And I, and they knew that I had played cello at one point. And they're like, you should, we need a bass player. Can you get a bass? And so that's what, that's how I got the bass. And we, and we played some Led Zeppelin tunes and, and some of our own stuff. And, and, uh, uh, yeah, we covered a bunch of different things. And, and, um, so at that point, when I was like around 15 years old, that's when I was getting familiar with, Metallica, and that was the "Injustice wow. for All" album, and uh, and the, the the tune one in, in particular was uh, uh, one that I just really stands out in my mind. It's a top five compositionally. Yeah, it holds definitely. Up, you know. down. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And his his second thing uh, is more of a comment, which we like relating these comments to you. He says, "Hearing your performance live, the similarity to Cliff's sound was so impressive that I closed my eyes, and it really felt like Cliff's spirit was in the building with us as you played." That's awesome, oh, man. Yeah, that's, that's cool. wonderful. Yeah, there was a. There, uh, that, that's uh, thank you, thanks to him for that uh, very nice comment. Uh, there was a. I, I also another thing that sort of showed me what the scale of what this was is the number of people from around the world that came to the live show. Absolutely. Oh god. I mean, yeah. I was just blown away. The people that I met after the show that like from Scotland and from Australia yeah. and Poland. I mean, just like all over the place. And uh, there was a lady that came up to me that had a sort of Eastern European sounding accent. I don't, she didn't ever say where she was from. Uh, and she had just tears streaming down her face and she gave me a hug and says, you just have no idea what you've done for me. And I wow. was just like, I, and so I just gave her a hug. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> and I thanked <laughs> that's her. A, that's an appropriate It was really response. sweet. Yeah. It was that's really cool. sweet. Well, there's one, there's one last question from our patrons. That's uh, a guy named Chad Hogg. He's, he's asked, you know, uh, did you avoid using an instrument with a large resonant body because it would have too much feedback? Speaking of Which the we electric sort of bass, talked about yeah. That, yeah. we kind of talked yeah. about it, but yeah, was that exactly. kind of the main reason for going with the electric bodyless bass? That, well, that was the main reason. And then when I started wondering like, oh, was this, or I started second guessing it, like, oh, could I have done it on an upright bass? And then Edwin, the conductor said, oh no, this is way more metal looking. <laughs> I said, yeah, you're right. You it would This looked, this looked more appropriate. Cause it's for, thin for and like the, the neck is black and it, it is kind of like just a neck. It looks like an HR Giger, like painting come to life. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. like a, it's like, yeah, right. It, it's like a stick with strings on it. And, right, uh, yeah. and, and actually because of the way it, it's built, um, there is a shoulder that's on the near side of me so that, because, you know, you have these reference points as a, as an acoustic double bass player sure. that are part of your proprioception, I think is the technical term, knowing where you are on the instrument, mm-hmm. these reference points. And, and, uh, um, when you have playing that instrument, it was drastically different because that's not there. Uh, so they made this shoulder attachment for the right side of the instrument from the player's perspective, left side from the audience perspective. Um, and so that leans against my body, but then there's another attachment that goes on the other side that was supposed to be a reference of where the other shoulder would be and would let my arm know where the break is. And, you know, as you go up into higher positions, uh, but they didn't send that to me. And so I just got used to it without it. And in the end, I actually liked it better without it because it was faster. You know, I could kind of fly around on it a little faster without a speed bump there. You're so punk rock, dude. Like, I don't need the other half of this bass. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my last question with you, Scott is like, how do you think 
and in and not like uh, superficial ways, but like, how do you think your life's going to be different now? I mean, you've made a big splash in the in the hard rock community. You've made inroads with some of the band. You've talked about collaborating with some of the band. What's what's next for you in light of SNM two? Well, you never know where life will take you. I mean, I never imagined being where I am now, and you know, something may come of it, something might not. I, I don't know. I uh, you know this this the Bible teaches this too shall pass you know mm-hmm. like everything has a season and and i'm enjoying it and if uh you know if, if something does come out of it that would be great i would i would love to explore new yeah. things and you know i've been playing in the symphony orchestras for quite a while now and uh so yeah i mean i would i would love to explore uh, doing other things and so yeah we'll see we'll see well i have a uh, and i'm not kidding with you i have a side project called lunar satan it's a metal <laughs> yes. project about, okay. about satan in space and it's all silly okay. it's all a big joke <laughs> Yeah, because uh, I don't really awesome. believe in Satan or anything. But I would yeah. love to have you play on a Lunar Satan jam. All right, <laughs> you send me, you send me the tracks. Maybe that's what it's all led to. That's the next step. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. And, and then Rob will hear that and be inspired, and you guys will collaborate on a double bass Christmas record. Yeah, yeah. A yeah. Yuletide record. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Scott. You've been so generous with your time yeah, and with your man. information. Oh, it's been and, fun. Uh, it's really fun. Thank you. It, you've been such a surprising and uh, wonderful addition to the family that we didn't even know we were missing you. Yeah. And now uh, here you are after SNM2, and you've taken your time to be on our podcast. And I know that thousands of our listeners are going to absolutely love hearing about absolutely. you and your story. And what can we say, man? I hope our paths cross again soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would love that. Maybe we can meet one day. And you mentioned, you know, the symphony goes on the road. If you guys come through Nashville, please hit us up. Uh, Oh, yeah. As we said before, Clint and I both tour. come to the bay area we'd love to hang out yeah oh please please yeah please make sure to point you have my number uh, that would be yeah, a blast yeah. well and and on top of that i mean uh, i'm from california i'm from southern california my wife is from the bay area so i, I spent a lot of time out there so i'd love to excellent meet up no sometime. seriously yeah seriously if you're out here let's do it and we look forward to hearing your new surf album with robert trujillo <laughs> yes coming out this christmas exactly. all right scott well thank you so much for your time get back to your family and uh good luck with you down the road in the symphony and and otherwise and uh, i'm sure we'll see you for a beer soon hopefully. yeah Oh, that would be great. I'll look forward to it, man. This has been my pleasure. All right. Thank you again. Thanks, guys. Well, there you have it, guys. That What a sweetheart. Scott Pingle. What a what a dude. His, sto- his story blows my mind. I mean, there's so many things to dissect in that interview, uh, conversation, whatever you want to call it. Um, one of the things that blows my mind is is the audition process that he had to go through to get in that symphony. So rigorous. Like the things, you and I have done auditions in Nashville, and in in our minds, those are like stressful and like, Oh God, stressful, degrading. Yeah. You know? And then he tells us that story and it's like, well, we have it easy. I've never had to communicate with the band leader or the artist via like, you know, a liaison or behind a screen. (laughs) Would would that be easier for us? If you, if you went to, if, if, if like, let's say, uh, uh, Miranda Lambert, Hey, uh, Clint Wells, I'd love for you to audition for my band. Great, you learn three songs. You show up. Um, by the way, there's a screen. You're going to be behind that. There's something kind of comforting about it being a screen because I'm lucky. I've only done two auditions in my whole in my ten years here, right? And I got both of them, um, which I know is not the case for many people. I know that you've had some auditions, like super talented people. I just got lucky. It's not because I stand above any of that, but sure. I will say, even in the two that I got, they were horrible experiences. They're not that fun. Because in one of them, 
kind of like what Scott was saying about when he went to HQ, it wasn't just Lars and Rob and Kirk. It was also 20 other managers and assistants. It was like a whole team of well, people. Yeah, they were, they were in the middle of doing their own band rehearsals for the show. It was Tex. It was, it was Zach and Chad. And, you know, I've had auditions where there was like management team and there mm-hmm. was booking agent team. And yeah. I don't know. That's stressful too, but you kind of know what you're there to do and you've obviously prepared if you're doing it and so sure. you just hope you get it. But with a screen in front of you, I don't know, something scary and comforting about it. What, what do you yeah. think about the, the un- screen? The, the unknown behind the screen. Ooh, the unknown. Who's back there? Just members of the symphony. <laughs> <laughs> it's Scott back there. Just. <laughs> it's just Scott. It's just Scott like playing, Scott back playing, there playing, playing with his bass. pedals, yeah. like trying to figure out the wah pedal. Yeah. No, that, that that was honestly one of the uh, most most fun interviews we've done. I think. No, I mean, for he, sure, he was such a good dude, very humble, um, a very true true musician, in my opinion. Like he, mm-hmm. obviously, he is leaps and bounds above us as far as his knowledge of well, like maybe music, you. music maybe, theory. Maybe you, maybe me. Uh. Um, <laughs> no, but I mean, that I'm guy, not in the San Francisco uh, Symphony by choice. I'll just put it that way. I'm not in it uh, by restraining order. No, he's right? obviously a deep cat musically for he sure. Is, yeah. But uh, what I love about uh, people like him is that, you know, he's got this knowledge of classical music. He can sight read like it's another language. Um, but he also loves Metallica, loves Cliff solos. He loves, you know, rock and roll music. He's not he's not a snob where he, he's like he only listens to certain, you know, composers and symphonies. You know, his his, his well, taste in music is very vast. I agree. And I actually loved what he had to say about um, the elitism of some of that genre of music right. and how it's a little short sighted. And, yep. you know, I thought that was really uh, open minded and cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I couldn't have been happier with uh, talking to Scott. Uh, it, it was a blast. I mean, and, and, and it, it sounds like we're all best friends now, too. So uh, we're totes best another, friends. <laughs> another couch to crash on in San Francisco. I uh, already booked a ticket. I'm flying there tomorrow. I already live with Scott. Yeah, you're there. We're on the phone right now. <laughs> Clint, how's the Bay Area weather right now? Well, listen, uh, if you like Metal Up Your Podcast, leave us a positive review on iTunes. If you like the content we work hard to put out for you every Monday. When these kinds of things happen, Ethan and I get together and we seek out people like Scott. We seek out people yeah. like Chad Z and and uh, Ray Burton and et cetera. And, uh, you know, it's a labor of love and we love it. If you want to support the show, leave a positive review. If you really like the show, then go join us on Patreon where you can ask people like Scott Pingle questions. That's right. And if you extra love the show, then join the symphony. <laughs> and be friends with Scott. That's all you have to do. That's all you got to do. It's really easy. Just go behind the screen and play your instrument and you'll get it. Think about how many people are weeded out by the brutality of that process. What do you say that, that like, it's like 200 people-ish? Well, he said there's a resume f- process and there's the video process and you have to make all that. Then there's the do it in person in front of the screen and then even if you kind of make that, they still have to vote on it. But then, then when you get the job... Then you get the gig and it's a whole year of a probationary year. That's the first year. And the second year was like another... Like another, another voting weird year. And then the third year is when you finally get to get some yeah, tenure. So year three, you basically have the gig solidified. Like year three is when they've decided like after three years, we know that this person's not a psychopath. That's which is not a good. It's insane. You need that's not a good test for psychopathy. I mean, year three of me being in certain bands, I was like in the photos and on records and <laughs> yeah, like totally as a band member in you the know, pre- like, press kit and shit. Exactly. Yeah. God, we have it easy, I guess. Right. Oh well. But it'd be like me and you now at this point in the podcast, someone above us going, okay. You can do a Metallica podcast, <laughs> right? Right, na- right. Now we're basically about nine months into like 
approval. Right. We just got past the sc- in front of doing the podcast in front of a screen stage. Yeah, the screen happened. The first year was you know the 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 you know the probation period. Right. You know, and the second year was a little bit of that, but now we're in. Like now we we can't get fired. Well, we're here as long as we want to be. Well, that's true. Yeah. As long as we have people like out there who listen and uh, <laughs> who care about the show. That's right. But uh, we can't thank Scott and obviously his family enough for taking Scott taking the time away from his schedule to, to talk yeah, to us. He's a sweetie. His, uh, his awesome wife and, and his kids to, uh, just rearranging their schedule to allow Scott to take the time to talk with us for God, a good while. And he and probably told his family that we were Rolling Stone. <laughs> he's like, listen, um, it's... This is look. I'm, the, I'm about to talk to TRL. Sorry, the New Yorker is calling. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> TRL. The, the Washington Post is called. <laughs> I'm getting interviewed by Carson. Daly. Ariana Huffington literally just called me. Ariana Sorry, Huffington. Ariana Grande Huffington. Uh, we're at the point now, Ethan, my friend, where I literally have to leave your house. I have to go home now. Well, I would literally allow you to. <laughs> Please leave my house. We love you out there at Metal Up Your Podcast Land. Thank you for all your support. Thank you for listening. Thank you. We couldn't do it without you. We'll see you on the flip-flop. And with that, let's just get out of here and say peace. Adios. If you were our advisor, what would you say? Then I would say, delete that.